zone. You can't go. All the plants are gonna die. I'm gonna take a bath. Bad dates. I'll alert the media. Boys, keep off the moors. It's evil. Don't touch it. The name's Pliskin. No more hangers. Welcome to Vintage Video, where we're rewatching the '80s so you don't have to. We'll be reviewing every major film release of the 1980s in chronological order, overanalyzing what you've seen and spoiling what you haven't. I'm Patrick O'Reilly. I'm Jesse Bayless. I'm Richard Wells. I'm BJ Boyd. And today we're discussing Outland, released May 22, 1981. It was written and directed by Peter Hyams and released by Warner Brothers. As you just heard, our guest today is Mr. VJ Boyd, who I met when we were both working on Patrick Swayze's Swan Song, A&E's The Beast, back in 2009-ish. Since then, VJ's gone on to work as writer-producer of FX's hit series Justified and CBS's SWAT, which just got renewed for its fifth season in April. Congratulations. Thank you. He's also the creator of NBC's Lincoln Rhyme, Hunt for the Bone Collector, based on the same Jeffrey Deaver novel that was adapted into the 1999 film. Word broke a few months back that the Justified team have reassembled to develop a new series for FX based on Elmore Leonard's City Primeval. Is there anything you can tell us about that project, or is that all secret for now? Only that you should read City Primeval. It's based pretty closely, and it's going to be great. Okay, that's awesome. Uh, from the novel's subtitle, High Noon in Detroit, I can deduce two things. Firstly, that the plot might bear some resemblance to Stanley Kramer's High Noon, which would make you the perfect guest for this week's show. And secondly, that it possibly takes place in Detroit. <laughs> it absolutely takes place in Detroit. There you go. Is, are you shooting in Detroit, probably? We do not know. We're not shooting until next year. We're doing the streaming thing where we write them all and then shoot them all months later. Okay. And this would take place in the same universe as Justified? Or is yes, that same secret? universe, uh, possibly some of the same characters. You know, we'll see. Very cool. Our film today is Peter Hyams' Outland. Hyams was interested in trying his hand at a Western, but the failures of every recent high-budget Western led people to advise him against the genre. It occurred to Hyams that most of the popular space-age blockbusters were essentially repurposed Western plots, and he set about putting one together. Sean Connery expressed an interest in the script, though Gene Hackman, James Brolin, and Clint Eastwood were all considered for the part. It was actually offered to Elliot Gould, who turned it down, but I would love to see that version of this. That would be insane. That kind of makes more sense to me, though, that it's like a mining town type like concept though sure. if we're basing it on mm. sort of westerns because i was thinking about it and i'm like hey we're so advanced now we have space travel we you know we could go to moons in our solar system but we're still mining by hand i mean the <laughs> only reason that we're gonna end up landing on these other planets is to collect resources from yeah them. but i feel like if we could get there we could probably do it without people yes um, for sure you know manually jackhammering the sides of the moon mining is almost automated on earth there's no reason <laughs> yeah. it wouldn't be way out there even with connery attached universal turned it down producer richard roth had a development deal with 20th century fox and brought the script to alan ladd jr's new the lad company he had just left fox the role of dr lazarus was first offered to colleen dewhurst who we saw last as jack lemon's nurse in tribute she would have been fine but i really like the woman that they got yeah, yeah, for yeah. the role bruce dern was considered for the role of sergeant montone which could have made this the same universe as 1972's silent running also, Bruce Stern, you know, classic Western character. Right. Yes. A popular fan theory insists that Outland takes place in the same universe as Alien, since both were greenlit by Alan Ladd, scored by Jerry Goldsmith, and shared nine production design department heads, resulting in a very similar aesthetic. They also both deal with interstellar mining and a shady parent company. 
The film was shot at Pinewood Studios, which explains the extensive cast overlap with Empire Strikes Back, Superman 2, and Judge Dredd when we go through the cast later, and also various other Pinewood productions. The working title was Io, but changed when it was unanimously mispronounced 10 or low <laughs> by everyone they pitched it to. Oh my god, that's amazing. Like, I thought, I laughed so hard when the title came up, right. and, it, and it says Io, like... Well, it says the letters, and then in parentheses afterwards, it has a pronunciation guide. Right. I'm like, oh, thank you, movie. That's yeah. so kind. Yeah. I can't I imagine they that. would have bothered with that if it wasn't originally the title. Yeah. Like, I feel like the only reason that's there is because that was the title when they put that title in. Yeah, but also there are, you know, you could put it on, like, gamma meters or something. Like, like, yeah, there's, there's other, other moons. There's other moons. There's, like, 70-something <laughs> moons of Jupiter. You don't have to make it this one. Yeah. Connery was granted permission to miss a morning's filming to shoot a pickup scene for Terry Gilliam's Time Bandits mm-hmm. in a nearby housing estate, which makes me think that it's the scene where he's a firefighter yeah. and not Agamemnon. So you said that there was a pickup? Uh, well, it was it was kind of an after-the-shoot thing. So okay. they had already done most of the production, and they just had this one minor scene, but it was important. And Terry Gilliam was like, can we borrow you for a second? And the production let him go. But he was back on set by lunch that right, day, so right, it was right. very close. Very, it's a very short scene. Yeah. When Outland's production ran over schedule, Connery was forced to back out of an extended cameo in Chariots of Fire, which would go on to win Best Picture the following year. Outland was the first motion picture to utilize intro vision, a process that allowed for in-camera compositing of live-action material, rear projection images, and foreground plate photography, giving filmmakers the chance to see the final shot through the lens without having to wait for everything to be processed. It was used to absolute perfection by Sam Raimi during the production of Army of Darkness. Almost two-thirds of the shots of that film included matte paintings or rear projection to complete the scene. I always think of the tiny ash Mm -hmm. moment. Yeah, that's amazing. Like, I didn't didn't know that was happening. I mean, I, I definitely took note of the fact that I thought that the matte paintings in this movie were exceptional, as well as any miniature work that was in there. And... I was I was blown away, especially with some of the camera moves that they were putting on these matte matte paintings. But it makes sense now that they were doing that in camera because I was I was hard pressed to figure out how they were doing that back then. Yeah, what um, did you watch it on, VJ? I watched it on Amazon Prime. It wasn't HD, I think. It was I okay. So, yeah, uh, because I have heard that the DVD is actually really terrible quality and it ruins all of the effects of the movie because it's kind of out of focus, mm. which it's just awful. yeah, it's really a bummer. But the Blu-ray is phenomenal. So yeah, but I, I'm actually really surprised that this was the first movie to do that. I mean, I know that doing like glass. Uh, you know, matte paintings uh, is not an unusual practice, but you're right. saying that in combination with rear projection. And also doing them all in production instead of doing any of it in post. Oh, okay. So instead of compositing the frame from the movie with a plate mm-hmm. in post, they did it live on set because the foregrounds weren't moving. Yeah. Um, it's, it's so funny. I It just occurred to me. <laughs> why we call them plates i feel like an idiot <laughs> yeah because they glass were plate. literally plates of glass yeah <laughs> um but the intro vision was basically like an early predecessor to the led walls that they're using on mandalorian except that you could have foreground images and background mm-hmm. images it was also released theatrically in mega sound an audio gimmick akin to sense around which utilized deep bass speakers to send low frequency rumbles through the theater to correspond with crashes or explosions in the film. We previously discussed Megasound regarding its use in the Altered States theatrical release. Megasound would be used in two more films, Superman 2 and Wolfen, both this season, before it was permanently discontinued, probably for similar reasons that Sensoround was ditched, 
including dizzied audiences and literal structural damage to the theater. Oh my god. (laughs) Alan Dean Foster's novelization of the film is regarded by many as better than the film, since Foster took pains to explain away plot holes and logic problems throughout the film. For instance, he describes in detail the futuristic shotguns where you could dial in the distance of your target to avoid damaging the ship extensively. That's awesome. Still not necessary to use shotguns, but okay. The film was also adapted into a popular comic book for Heavy Metal Magazine by Jim Steranko. The film's only Oscar nomination was for Best Sound, but it lost to Raiders, which is unfortunate but fair. I mean, the sound is great in this movie, mm-hmm. but uh, but Raiders is a little bit better. In 2009, a remake was announced to be directed by Michael Davis, who at the time had just directed Shoot 'Em Up, but since then the project seems to have gone dark. So that's unfortunate. Someone is definitely remaking it. I was approached about it last year. Wow. So. I think it's going to be a show, though, or a miniseries. That would be great. I would love yeah. that. Yeah. We start with the Lad Company logo, and then we see a sea of stars for the opening titles. The word Outland is slowly illuminated by an unseen light source in space, reminiscent of the slow turning of the monoliths of 2001 A Space Odyssey. I really love the font that they use for Outland here. Right. It's great. It's it's really blocky and angular, but it's also like a weird combination of like capital and lowercase letters. It's fantastic. And it's consistent throughout the ship too. Like every sign that we see, every label on every door is written in the same cool yeah, font. Yeah, it's really high quality uh, art direction in this film because yeah. everything is, is, is very well thought out and very consistent in this design. One thing that that wasn't well thought out was the spelling of O'Neill's name, which drives me crazy that it's N-I-E-L, but I kept checking every time it shows up anywhere and I was sure I was going to catch them spelling it correctly once <laughs> and they never did so good for them well i'll have you know i misspelled it then completely every time in my notes because <laughs> i did not notice that yeah uh one one great thing too is uh about the just i know we're only talking about the opening title so i have so much more just about the opening too <laughs> well i mean because uh i mean like the slow fade in very reminiscent to alien yeah and yeah. also the jerry goldsmith score it's very reminiscent of like his it was like score. oh yeah this feels very much like alien yeah, yeah. And this is only two years later, so it makes sense. We get all of our exposition at the start as digital readout over space photography. Io, and then in parentheses, E-Y-E-O-H, the third moon of Jupiter. Weirdly, the film's trailer, which is narrated by Roscoe Lee Brown for some reason, refers to Io as Jupiter's second moon, which would actually be Ganymede, because the planet's moons are typically numbered largest to smallest. I was going to ask, like, what do they do to deserve those ranks? Yeah, <laughs> I, I, w- I would have gone inner to outer. <laughs> Maybe, maybe, maybe that's the that explains the discrepancy. Well, yeah, because maybe they shifted orbit since. Uh, Wouldn't the orbit be affected by the size of the moon, though? I don't know. I'm just guessing. But also, Io is extremely violent. It's like all volcano. Basically. It's all volcano. It's constantly being torn apart by Jupiter's gravity. So the fact that that wasn't brought up at all in the movie was. <laughs> Did they know that at the time, though? Um, I'm well. They knew. They knew it, but Peter Hyams knew it at least by 2010, the movie which, which was three years later. <laughs> <laughs> oh, good for him. It didn't reflect back. When he did the DVD commentary yeah. in 2010. Like, God damn it. No. Uh, uh, when he did uh, 2010, The Year We Make Contact, it's all about IO. Um, well, and how some volca- of it is well, about yeah, IO. But, it, but how volcanic and how explosive it is. Right. Maybe that was from all the fan letters that were complaining to him. And he was like, yeah. I'm going to factor that into my next script. Unless it's in the Arthur C. Clarke stuff. I don't know. I haven't read 2010. So, Do you guys recall the last film we reviewed that took place on the third moon of a gas giant? Saturn 3? That is correct. <laughs> yes. 
It was better than my guess. <laughs> it was going to be Galaxina. I'm like, I don't Perfect. know where that was. <laughs> Maybe. Yeah. Who knows? Technically, the the third moon of Saturn is called Tethys, but they never say that in the film. Three years later, Hyams would direct a film centered on Io and the first moon of Jupiter. It's 2010, The Year We Make Contact, the sequel to 2001 A Space Odyssey, which is a job he got because of his work directing this film. And that was in 84? Yes. We see Io's diameter and distance from Jupiter, which are largely irrelevant to the plot. <laughs> and then its distance to the nearest space station, but this distance is presented in hours, 70 hours to be exact, to give us an idea of the moon's isolation. They get a supply shuttle once a week. The surface gravity is about one-sixth of Earth's, similar to the gravity of Earth's moon. But again, this doesn't play a huge factor in the story, and they don't look like they're in one-sixth gravity, yeah. even when they're outside and things are slowed down. Yeah. Well, that, that, that actually really bothered me, especially especially towards the end of the film. I'm like, if it's if it's roughly equivalent to the moon, anytime you take a, you know, a, a step, like especially one where you are, in theory, running, you should sort of be bouncing off of the, of the structures that yeah. you're on. And, I, and I, I'm comfortable saying that inside they have gravity that's normal because yeah. they do some special thing but when they're outside they, they're still not moving like they're in one six gravity yeah and and there's a couple of scenes uh where they'll jump from like ledges and and they're acting like the one six gravity is a concept where you just float down but there would still be accelerating you'd be you'd be constantly accelerating because there would be no terminal velocity right you would just be in a constant state well, of acceleration. Well, is there no terminal velocity or is there some atmosphere on the planet? Oh, I mean, I mean, like everything has some, even the moon has some atmosphere, but right. it's, it's so negligible that if an object was falling, it would just continue to accelerate until it smacked into the ground. That makes sense. We get our first look at the mining colony, Con Am 27, which is an abbreviation of Con Amalgamate, a company name which was previously used in Peter Hyams' Capricorn 1. And before that, it appeared in the Herbert Ross 1971 film T.R. Baskin as the company that Peter Boyle's character claims to work for, which is weird because that's before this. So he worked for this company twice. But doesn't that make sense? No, I'm Wait, saying- I'm confused. <laughs> he claims in that movie to work for Con Amalgamate. Okay, you're, you're just saying that it's a, a funny coincidence. I'm saying that it's intentional. You're saying this is a sequel yeah. to Herbert Ross's Clearly. 1971 film <laughs> T.R. Baskin, which I don't even think is a space movie or <laughs> sci-fi. <laughs> Maybe. Maybe he's a vampire and this is a sequel to that movie. There's layers here. <laughs> there are 2,144 employees working the site, 1,250 of which are actual miners, with the rest being support and administrative roles. A tour working the colony lasts a year, and we are starting the film at the tail end of an annual cycle. The mine's output is titanium. They didn't know it at the time, but Io has negligible titanium deposits, so that's actually a terrible place for this mine to be. <laughs> the camera follows an elevator down into the bowels of the mine, where a small group of men take their place to begin work. We see people in spacesuits welding scaffolding together and discussing the looming threat of being replaced by robots. Is that what they're doing? I think yeah. so. Oh, okay, because they're using torches and stuff, and I'm just like, is this how we mine titanium? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> just to hold out their hand and collect yeah. whatever metal falls out of the wall? You, you just, like, you know, shove an awl in there in a little spigot and turn it like, like you're getting a <laughs> like syrup maple from a tree. Syrup. <laughs> <laughs> uh, my first major note here is that these miniatures are fantastic. They really are great. They're so good. <laughs> And the the combination though too that you're seeing like you're seeing people 
walk into an elevator that's, you know, like a full size elevator, but they've like shrunk it down into, you know, this amazing miniature set. And then there's matte painting on the side. I'm just like, I love it. It's so awesome. And for a lot of the the super wide shots, they pulled the same trick from Alien and from Lord of the Rings, where they actually had little person actors portraying the characters from further away to to add to the scale of the set. Well, and they have so much depth in so many of these shots that's amazing because they even like they do these fun camera moves where you're going from those far away things to people even working in the foreground. Right. Um so they they're having all in one shot. All in one shot. Yeah. So they're having multiple layers on on this on this set and like I don't know if you could do all of that like in camera, but or well, I guess you're right. If they did rear projection, they filmed the elevator thing first and rear projected right. the live footage of that. So it's just the the amount of visual effects planning on this film is just incredible. Yeah. We back away from the men arguing about automation and come to rest on Tarlo, as played by John Ratzenberger. Oh, really? Yeah. I didn't notice. He's this first guy here. (laughs) He's sweating like crazy in his helmet, and his movement appears labored. He's suddenly startled and drops a tool on the catwalk. He begins ranting maniacally about spiders while swatting at his legs. If he's not imagining them, they must be inside of his suit. But he's also stomping on the empty platform as if crushing the invisible spiders. So this is a confirmed freakout. I, I, I'm sorry. If you think there's spiders all over the place, are you logically going to just stand still and be like, there's spiders in my suit. You're going to freak out and stomp around. I would around. surrender to the spiders immediately. <laughs> Richard wouldn't. He would stomp. Well, I mean. I, Richard I would, would definitely take his helmet off. I, I, I would. <laughs> it doesn't like, matter. I'm in space. Like, sorry, guys. I'm out. <laughs> I know spiders. this will kill me, but I'm not going to deal with this. <laughs> I felt like his colleagues really did not take this seriously yeah. enough. Like for a right. long time, they it were was... like, "He's just joking. He's just—it's just a prank." Like yeah. he's screaming for a long time before they take it seriously. I, I feel like Tarlo must once a week complain about spiders. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, it's like ah, oh, the spider uh, thing again. The okay, boy Tarlo. Who cried spiders. <laughs> How could there be a spider here? Nothing alive here. He's putting us on. <laughs> And then I have the guy better pull pranks like this all the time to be so callously ignored by his friends in his time of need. (laughs) Suddenly he's complaining that the spiders have breached his PPE and insists (laughs) that he'll have to open the suit to vent the spiders. Grow up, Jesse. (laughs) Get your mind out of the gutter. He yanks out his oxygen tube and lets out a blood-curdling scream as his entire head swells to fill the helmet before erupting. Like he's thunder from the three storms in Big Trouble in Little China. <laughs> His coworkers watch helplessly wait, wait, as. Wait, wait, wait! You're not gonna do when the the. Do you guys recall the last time somebody's head exploded? Would it be scanners or? <laughs> that would be my guess. Is there a more recent head explosion than that? I feel like there might have been. There, I think there was. Um, oh, because you guys referenced oh. having seen it in scanners in yeah. another episode. It might be uh, Maniac. When he gets shot in the face with a shotgun yes, through the windshield. that was totally it. Yeah, so those, yeah. those were the two this year. That makes sense. His co-workers watch helplessly as his corpse falls over the railing and slowly to the surface of the moon below. We cut to the living quarters of Carol G. O'Neill and her son Paul as she prepares breakfast. While they argue about Paul's braces, his father, Federal Marshal William T. O'Neill, as played by Sean Connery, enters the room. He reminds his son that braces will prevent crooked teeth and then threatens to punch Paul's teeth out if he doesn't eat his breakfast right away. The waste of money on braces. <laughs> <laughs> that would hurt, I think, to punch someone with braces. Mm. William goes to check his video messages while his family eats. Officer Lowell, as played by Manning Redwood, appears on screen and says there's not much to report. 
He's replaced by James B. Sicking as Sergeant Montone, who says that there are no new developments with regard to the man who went crazy and whipped off his helmet yesterday. Great to have your son listening in. Yeah, they're eating for this. (laughs) His body is being taken away by shuttle immediately. The conversation gets a little graphic for Bill's family to have to eat next to. The company's having the body shipped back, or what's left of it, immediately on today's shuttle. It's impossible to do an autopsy. Christ, you should have seen that mess. Oh, God. (laughs) It was like a bowl of cereal. (laughs) <laughs> it looked exactly like alphabets. What? <laughs> Why alphabets? Montone insists that this madness is just a thing that happens up here, and the conversation simultaneously reminds me of all the video correspondence from 2001 and Jack Torrance's first interview with Mr. Ullman at the Overlook Hotel in The Shining. Just an FYI, people here go crazy and murder everyone. Chat you later. <laughs> Montone ends his message with a notification for Mrs. O'Neill that the tickets she requested are available at the office. Bill closes the call and asks his wife about these tickets, and she lies that she ordered some tickets for a friend. <laughs> it's clear here already that she's lying. <laughs> he kisses his family goodbye and reminds his son to do his homework on the way out. Carol stops him for a more passionate kiss at the door, and he promises her that this will get better, reminding her that it's only been two weeks. We cut to the cafeteria, where suspicious music and camera work lead me to believe that we're seeing covert signals being passed all over the colony. But it just looks like people getting up and moving around to a new place Mm -hmm. until two men get very close together, close enough for a handoff. But even the handoff is happening off camera. We just see two people move behind a thing together and then one leaves. I would be a really bad like DEA agent because I didn't notice any of this. Well, (laughs) I didn't catch that at all. I I thought it was just establishing like, oh, the people in the colonies, this guy seems suspicious. That's all I got out of that. Is this this the scene where one of them goes into a stall and the one goes into the stall next door? Yeah. Well, no, that's that's later. Okay. But but even in this first scene, he walks up to the guy and like they just kind of stand next to each other for a second and then one guy leaves and it was just long enough for something to have changed hands, but it happens out of frame. Mm-hmm. Mm. So, I think the point is is that it's understandable why people wouldn't catch that this is going on because they're being so subtle about it. We see O'Neill in the officer's mess seemingly introducing himself to the crowd despite apparently having been here for 2 weeks already. A woman named Flo Spector, as played by Pat Starr, stands and offers a warm welcome to O'Neill and his family, offering to fulfill whatever material needs they may have here before disappearing from the film forever. <laughs> Who is this character? <laughs> does she like? She's in accounting, I think. Yeah. <laughs> does she, she, she win her cameo in an auction or something? Why? Why is she only in this one moment? And, and like so many of the, I like was reading into a lot of the names. I know, yeah. And I was like, Spectre? Is it because she's never seen a kid? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) You imagined her, Richard. (laughs) General Manager Mark B. Shepard, as played by Peter Boyle, is the last to welcome O'Neill and immediately transitions to singing the colony's praises. Since I've been the general manager here, this mine has broken all productivity records. We're on our way to becoming the leading con amalgamate operation. And everyone in this room has received the bonus checks to prove it. Good work only comes from contented people. I work these people hard, and I, uh, I let them play hard. So when it comes time for them to let off steam, you have to allow them some room. As long as no harm's done, just give them a little room. 
That, that's why he built like a Beetlejuice-esque brothel for everyone to <laughs> yeah. go to. Just give him a little rum. Yeah, it's like it's like is this is this standard operating procedure to have just a a a den of prostitution? Yeah. Yeah. Is this the little the rum you were talking about? Also, which version of Beetlejuice did you watch? <laughs> no, well, oh no, because uh, Beetlejuice is like uh, his, oh, Juno, Juno oh, distracts yes. him with the, okay. the whorehouse. Yeah. Yes, okay, I understand that reference now. <laughs> And this Alec Baldwin denies more. having built it. <laughs> yeah. He's just like, I didn't put that there. <laughs> this one was a little bit more graphic than that. <laughs> yeah. He invites O'Neill by his office later for a private chat. And we see O'Neill and Montone push through some metallic saloon style doors into what looks like some sort of central security office. Montone tries to warn O'Neill how powerful Shepard is here and not to pick a fight with him. We cut back to the mines where the men are changing shifts in a room that reminded me of My Bloody Valentine, where all the mining uniforms were chained up to the ceiling, and you could yank them down to change for work. Mm-hmm. A row of men begin filling their oxygen tanks, and we notice one man passing by behind them with no protective suit on at all. He swipes his card at the elevator and enters a key code before anyone even notices him. When the doors open, people turn to see him enter the elevator, smiling wide, but nobody takes any action to stop him until it's too late. They bang uselessly against the glass, and the man inside seems very sure of his actions as he presses the elevator buttons to ride the car down to the depths of the mine. We watch the elevator display as the man travels 30-ish floors down. The men at the bottom floor turn when they see the elevator doors open to find a man sprawled across the floor with his intestines burst from his chest as though he were microwaved in this elevator on the way down. Well, because he opened the airlock right. while he was in there. Yeah. It does honestly seem like both of these first two deaths were very preventable, which right. would have completely changed the movie. If right. the, if people had just reacted like, I don't know, like five seconds earlier, the movie would have been totally different. If they had reacted like, this happens to 30-something people every six months, <laughs> like <laughs> maybe they could have prevented it. But instead they're like, spiders, what's he talking about? I don't know. Let's let him fall off the railing. Well, and that there's no like... There's no safety mechanism yeah. to get this guy once he goes in. Like, So if you go in accidentally, you're just done for. I, I yeah. don't know. It seems very odd i also feel like i would i would put some kind of a a safety catch on these helmets so that you can't just pull the oxygen tank out like with your bare hands or with your gloved hands it should be like metal the whole way not just a tube that you could just yank and it shouldn't just be like this thing that arches out around it should be like just catch it on yeah what yeah exactly (laughs) caught it on something and oh i'm dead now great i I get my belt loops caught on drawers all the time (laughs) you would die in this mine He said something about spiders, <laughs> and then he caught his belt on that thing. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> caught his belt, his pants came down, and he blew his whole body out of his anus. <laughs> That's what happens. That's the true science. Because that would be, instead of my head exploding from my helmet oh, coming off. your pants came down. <laughs> I just assumed you were quoting, like, Rick and Morty or something. No. Like, no, this is your own invention. He might accidentally be quoting Rick and Morty. I have to assume there was an attempt to record the man's death scene because it really is kind of a bummer to just watch the elevator go down from the outside. I mean, you understand what's happening when you're watching it, so that's kind of terrifying. But I feel like there must have been something where an effect wasn't working and they decided Mm. to just show the outside of the elevator. Mm. We cut to O'Neill arriving to his living quarters to find them empty. He flicks on his video answering machine, and as he moves around calling for his wife, she suddenly appears on screen. It's a Dear John video. She apologizes for delivering the message this way, but she didn't have the heart to tell him to his face that she can't stand this mining colony. Even though I think she did tell him to his face that she yeah. couldn't stand the mining colony. And now she's leaving. Their son has never been to Earth. 
and she doesn't want him to spend his entire childhood in these sterile ships. As a result, she has taken his son to the space station 70 hours away, intending to move on to Earth from there. We cut to Sergeant Montone leading a roll call at the security desk. Apparently, there's been an ongoing issue with some missing nuclear detonators. <laughs> and one of the officers announces nonchalantly that they were located. Where? I don't know. <laughs> well, well, first of all, he doesn't say where. I wrote it very specifically. He when, did say where. You know, he, he, he says, where? Where? <laughs> I was like, did he say where or where? <laughs> Whiskey! I just don't get why you're saying it that way. Why I'm saying what, what way? Forget it. I will. I will forget it. Nelson, we're talking about nuclear detonators. You just don't lose them and then find them. You lose your comb and then find it, not detonators. Montone asks Officer Slater about the elevator death, and Slater says that there were multiple witnesses, that the guy did it to himself, and there's no chance it was a homicide. These detonators never come back. Nope. Nope. Okay, like I, I was waiting for them to be like central to like some plot that was happening later and they never come back. I feel like the point is just that this place is very poorly managed. Okay. And that, that even though this guy is keeping everybody happy, he's not doing anything that matters, like doing the important stuff. All he's doing is keeping their numbers up. Had to have been a suicide. Did he leave a note? Beg your pardon, sir? Did he leave a note? None that we know of, sir. Then how do you know it was a suicide? Slater tries to argue that because he was able to operate the elevator that he was clearly of sound mind, but I don't think that tracks. I'm going to go ahead and say it here based on the invisible spiders attacking the first victim. It seems clear that these men are under the influence of something. We cut to the office of the colony doctor, Dr. Lazarus. She's arguing with a fellow hospital employee who just delivered 1,000 pressure packs when Lazarus claims to have only ordered 100. You said 1,000. I said 100, which can't be mistaken for anything except 100. It doesn't sound remotely like 1,000. Listen, you'll hear what I mean. 1,000. 100. They are totally different. Richard, are you, did you read into her name at all? She, she Did she come back from, from the dead and redeem yeah. herself? Oh, everybody's name is important. I'll go over them all okay. at the end. All right. Yeah, all right. yeah. I, I, I was like, God, everyone's name is so... Uh, Relevant. So even O'Neill, just the fact that the Irish Except are policemen, yeah. even I, in the I future. Have, I have a, a very reaching grasp for okay. O'Neill's right. name. And, uh, and Carol, if you reverse the vowels, it's Corral because it's a Western. No. Oh, there you go. <laughs> And backwards, it's Lorac, and she speaks for the trees. No, that's not true. <laughs> Marshall O'Neill approaches the argument as she offers him a prescription. Are you Dr. Lazarus? Yes, take two aspirin and call me in the morning. That's a doctor joke. Are you the new Marshall? He tells her that he'd like to talk to her, and she jokes that she has an alibi for whatever situation he's talking about. I got four people who swear they were playing poker with me. I've never heard that one before. That's really funny. Sorry. He tells her about the recent suicides, and she seems not unfamiliar with the phenomenon. He asks if she typically performs autopsies in these cases, and she admits that she doesn't for two reasons. Firstly, company policy dictates that the bodies be shipped away from the colony immediately. And secondly, these particular deaths don't leave much behind to work with. He tasks her with putting together a report of all such unexplained deaths in the previous six months. I'd like it really soon, or I might just kick your nasty ass all over this room. That's a Marshall joke. This joke would be a lot funnier if it weren't for Connery's very public endorsement of slapping women around. It's a very weird joke. Yeah. Very weird. Here's a quick exchange he had with Barbara Walters. Oh, no. As I remember, you said you don't do it with a clenched fist. It's better to do it with an open hand. Mm. Yeah. Remember that? Yeah. Yeah. 
And I, I love that. I haven't changed my opinion. You haven't? No. Sorry, I don't know who is who in that conversation because you're speaking all yeah, the Yeah, you need to do Barbara Walters' voice. <laughs> okay, sorry. <laughs> I thought I did Connery's voice for the Connery lines, but I can't do a Barbara Walters impression. Baba was. <laughs> I thought about my butt. You said that you don't do it with a clenched fist. It's better to do it with an open hand. Remember that? I didn't love that. I haven't changed my opinion. You haven't? No. That's that. <laughs> I had great. never heard that before. That's yeah. insane. That's not the only time he said it. There's plenty of interviews of Sean Connery saying, yeah, slap him around. And I think in the Barbara Walters one specifically, she says, uh, you've said that there there are excuses or there there are situations where it calls for it. Can you explain what one of those situations would be? And he says, when you've tried everything else. <laughs> what? <laughs> That's what does that mean? Insane. Oh, yeah. I thought you were going to be like, before. right now. No, but, and he's literally, and she asks him to describe that situation, and he's like, well, like, if she won't stop talking about a thing that you told her that you didn't want to talk about, it's like, what? You've tried all that the things. That doesn't call for that. Oh, my God. We cut to the miners' sleeping quarters, where the men are walking around very suspiciously again, signaling to each other for another handoff. Two men enter neighboring bathroom stalls and quickly part ways. I like the stall doors that they kind of fold, not in the middle, but like three quarters. Yeah. So like you can open it up without having to like step into the toilet like most most stalls. I actually like stepping in the toilet sometimes. <laughs> yeah, but like everything, everything in this is like custom made, custom designed. Mm-hmm. Like it must have, what was the production budget on this? It must have been huge. Um, I think it was between twelve and seventeen million, or That's something it? like that. Yeah. See, I feel like it would have been more. No, it was a surprisingly cheap movie. Saturn Three was was ten, I think. So this is like barely double that, and Saturn Three only had like four rooms. You know, they, but they it, built ha- a whole... it had a whole hectare. Mm-hmm. That's true. That was a tenth of the budget. Yeah. Yeah. The two men enter neighboring bathroom stalls and then quickly part ways. We get a glimpse of the customer's bunk moments later. And he fishes a very sci-fi looking injection gun from under his bed. He plugs a large vial of red fluid into the top and then jabs the needle into his thigh to inject it. His eyes open wide for a moment and then gloss over immediately. But it looks like he only took like half of the dose in the vial, so maybe you get two from each of these. We cut to Montone arriving in O'Neill's quarters with some lunch in hand. He seems to be here checking up on a friend and explains that he went through the same thing on his second tour. Second time I did a tour, I got back. My wife had skipped off with some guy who was a computer programmer. I have two daughters. They call a programmer daddy. When Montone can see that the sensitive approach isn't working, he switches tactics. You know, the hookers here are nice. O'Neill thanks him for trying and dismisses him from the room. After Montone leaves, O'Neill plays the last message from his wife on the video screen over again. Suddenly his phone is ringing, and it sounds like an emergency. He grabs a shotgun before leaving the room. When uh, One thing I wrote down when uh, Montone goes to visit him is there are these odd rock sculptures in uh, O'Neill's uh, quarters, which his wife didn't take with her, which means they're his, I guess. It's <laughs> 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 a very odd decorational choice, uh, considering there's not much room or storage, it appears. So yeah, some rock sculptures. You're very Star Trek Next Generation, honestly. Yeah. Where it's just like, okay, so that's all you have, I guess. And, and yeah. I know that he's like pretty high up the the food chain here, but when we see the the cages that the the miners are mm-hmm. living in, yes, yeah. it, it made this room feel really large, especially for like space. You know, like yeah, yeah. in space, everything's typically shrunken. It's like on a on a ship, like 
at sea, all the rooms, even the captain's room, is tiny. Yeah, like all the bunks for the miners, which I assume are their entire room and personal space, are like those tiny little like Japanese hotels that sleep one right. person. <laughs> it reminded me of the jail from the Super Mario Brothers movie where oh, Mojo Nixon sure. is locked up. Um, or, or like the one in Big Trouble in Little China where they, they shoot through the whole wall to break all the locks. What... Uh, you definitely want to be on the higher up bunks just in case someone above you gets sick and it just like yeah. flow trickle down theory <laughs> oh, all the way to the bottom. <laughs> I was like, oh man, this is just way too open. Everyone's smoking. Yeah. It's like, I get it. This is the life that you signed up for because you're using that. You're not using that money for space. You're using that money for booze and women. Yeah. But, uh, it's very, very close quarters. Like, like all the, the changing rooms are wide open to the yeah. rest of the like the showers and stuff like that. I'm like, we're watching naked dudes change like as you're walking just randomly through the ship. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I also like that even though we have like high tech monitoring and video chat messaging systems, when he gets the emergency call, it's a corded phone up on the yeah, wall. Yeah, yeah. It's not even a cordless phone or yeah. a wireless radio. It's it's a phone he can only go two feet away from the wall yeah. with. He grabs a shotgun before leaving the room. That's right, space shotguns. O'Neill is led to a door to a leisure compartment where the hookers do their business. And by that I mean sex, not it's not a bathroom for hookers. <laughs> O'Neill tries to reason with the man through the door, but inside he clearly seems intoxicated and screams maniacally as he pokes the girl's neck with a massive hunting knife. Enough to draw small drops of blood, but never completely slicing open her throat. O'Neill asks the men to find a maintenance worker to investigate which air conditioning duct might lead into this leisure compartment, and then he orders Montone into the vents before turning to the maintenance worker and asking her to unlock the door by opening the hydraulic valves on his command. And... Finally, like one of the most realistic depiction of just disgustingly dirty air ducts. Yeah. Like even the ducts in Alien were kind of like relatively smooth. This is like got grime on it yeah. from all kinds of like just dust and debris that no one's cleaned forever. Yeah. It's not that diehard vent that looks like it was installed yesterday. Yeah. Inside the room, the crazed man is shouting gibberish and swinging the knife around. O'Neill tries to make a plan with the man from the door. He promises not to hurt the man so long as he doesn't hurt the girl. You're going to kill me. No, I'm not. You have my word. You also have my word that if you kill that girl, I will kill you. O'Neill begins a countdown from ten, and when he gets to zero, Montone drops from the ceiling and fires a shotgun blast into the man's chest instantly. O'Neill asks for the door to be unlocked, and when he steps inside, he's clearly furious to find the man killed. Montone pulls the good old-fashioned, it's coming right for us. To be fair, like, we don't see them discussing a plan beforehand. He just right. kind of goes in there, and I feel like Sean Connery's just talking real eyes, like, hey, if if anybody were in there, I'm going to count down from 10. But if he was close <laughs> enough to hear the countdown, he was also close enough to hear the promise that we won't murder no, you. No, he said, I, I promise I won't kill oh, you. Oh, okay. Yeah. So he thought he was speaking in code. I thought he was speaking okay. in code, but then he was okay. upset about it. <laughs> oh, yeah, I'm, I'm, with, I'm with Jesse completely. I, I thought that that was the plan until he came in all frumpy. Yeah. I, I think the plan was always that montone was like i know what he meant but i need to kill this guy right away so that this guy doesn't say yeah anything. i mean i know i know that now but uh, you know i thought i thought it was like this coded message like definitely kill this guy when you jump out at t- on 10 but the <laughs> the look that sean connery gives him after he walks in where he's just like god damn it like why did you do that you yeah. knew i didn't want that yeah um it reminded me of brubaker when matt clark 
like when they're coming up on the the building that's like right on the edge of the prison property he's like hey we're here with the new warden and you better come out right away and then like robert redford looks at him like the fuck was that like (laughs) why did you do that yeah and again, it seems like this is actually so hard to cover up because this guy, again, could have been caught alive. So right. if we're saying there's been like 60 of these the last year. They're very lucky that when these people go crazy in very differing ways, yeah. honestly, That's true. they always go crazy. They don't go crazy in a way that they're just sitting there pretending to pet a toy rabbit or something. No, <laughs> yeah. no. They go crazy in a way that kills them every time. Nobody's gone crazy in a way that just tells everybody about the drug they took. Yes, exactly. (laughs) Well, I would imagine that vast amounts of these people are on it. So I don't think it's like this huge secret, really. Yeah, that's true. I I, mean, it seems like everybody knows except for O'Neill. Well, that's what I was going to say. It's a secret from O'Neill. But but even then, we kind of come to find out that for most of the marshals, it's not a secret. They're just also on the take. But there's one guy that doesn't know, and there's only about 2,100-something people that do know. It's not a secret that you're going to keep for very long. That is some. There is some truth to that, I suppose, that all the other people are like, oh, it's not going to happen to me. You know, It's only happened to 60 people out of right. this many thousand. It's not going to happen to me, so it's going on whatever. I can well, handle the juice. I, I don't, well, they're addicts, so I, yeah. I don't know that they're necessarily making like logical choices But he's about saying it. before they're addicts when they decide Maybe. to start using it. Maybe. I don't know. They're... they're they haven't made the best life choices to That's end up true. at a mining colony thus far. They might not be the the brightest, but uh, it is kind of weird to me though that the doctor hasn't flagged it till this point because yeah. I, I feel like with two thousand people, when you're when sixty of them have you know done this in the last year, I feel like that's a few red flags for a doctor. <laughs> yeah, she seems like she's a little bit lazy right now. The prostitute is rushed into a medical scan of some sort. Jaw looks broken. Maybe the nose. Contusions. Neck wound looks superficial. Jesus Christ, who did this to her? Our worker. My nuts. Happens here, remember? Lazarus presents O'Neill with the report on the recent unexplained deaths. 28 in the last six months. I wonder how many in the six months before that. 24, I've got initiative. Oh, good for you. You want to know how many in the six months before that? Two. Are you sure? I'm unpleasant. I'm not stupid. Of course I'm sure. I can count. As he's receiving this information from Lazarus, he's noticing that every shelf of this morgue is empty. Apparently, Con Amalgamate's policy is to launch the bodies into space, like mm-hmm. a burial at sea. So not only are they being shipped away immediately, but then they launch them into space instead of doing any kind of investigation. Later, we see O'Neill exploring through a storage area in darkness with a flashlight. He's here to find the corpse of the man who went crazy in the room with the prostitute before they blast him into space. He removes a syringe from his jacket and takes a huge blood sample directly from the guy's neck. Was I wrong or did the tag on him say contaminated? Uh, I think it did. Yeah, I just think that would be weird also if you're trying to like cover your tracks to tag a body as contaminated. (laughs) Yeah. I think it's just to keep people from opening it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, Oh man, now I can't remember the own refer- my own reference, uh, where someone had a briefcase and they wrote "not radioactive." <laughs> it's like, it's like, but who's gonna be stupid enough to try to open it? Yeah, that's true. <laughs> 
It's hard enough to get a blood sample from a living person using veins, but something tells me that this is not a good place on the human body to get blood from. Oh, the neck? I don't know. If he hit the the artery in your neck, that might actually be an okay place. It looks like he plunges it exactly perpendicular, like (laughs) two inches into this guy's neck. It's more like his trachea than his He's just got a throat full of blood for some reason. (laughs) He was gargling it when he died. And blood settles in a corpse. Yeah. Yeah. From your experience. <laughs> <laughs> you got to keep turning yeah. the course. <laughs> yeah, you want that blood to be even. You know, it's, nice, nice. <laughs> it's like slip casting. <laughs> <laughs> the novelization explains that O'Neill has to use a special machine to take this sample of coagulated blood, and he doesn't just suck perfectly fresh blood from a dead guy. See, vampires. Well, there you go. <laughs> it's all starting to come together. Lazarus, come on. Mm-hmm. We cut to Dr. Lazarus's bedroom where she is awoken by a phone call. Her bedroom, by the way, also seems to be the intensive care unit. She just sleeps in there. <laughs> Doctors often sleep on call. I've seen no, ER. She's always on the call. Yeah, I think. I, yeah exactly. <laughs> That's true. It's yeah. my only medical knowledge. <laughs> See, mine's all scrubs, but same thing. They sleep in the hospital. O'Neill calls her to his office immediately. You know what time it is? Yes. You better be dying. She injects the blood sample he collected into a machine for analysis. It becomes clear that O'Neill hasn't told her the source of the sample when she identifies it as belonging to a dead person. Though I assume at that point she knows who it came from. <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't have a huge supply of corpses to choose from. The blood contains standard issue company tranquilizers. Dr. Lazarus types away furiously at a keyboard, but both screens just look like screensavers. There's one that's a bar graph, and then there's one that's just a bunch of floating polyhedrons. She makes some self-deprecating comments about her medical expertise to warn O'Neill that she may not have all the answers here. You know, you haven't your medical all-star here. Company doctors are like ship's doctors. Most are one shuttle flight ahead of a malpractice suit. She tells him that her job here is essentially handing out tranquilizers and checking prostitutes for STDs. So analyzing a new molecule is quite the challenge. On one of the monitors, we see a green wireframe grid with a sort of ripple animation, That reminded me of when Homer went into the third dimension from whatever treehouse of horror that was. For some reason, this indicates to her the presence of a synthetic narcotic. She identifies the narcotic as polydichloric euthamol, which she describes as a sort of super meth. She tells O'Neill that the army tested it on soldiers and it makes everybody work way harder, but it also makes them psychotic around the one year mark, which is conveniently when their tours are ending. Did you Google it? Is it a thing? Do you guys recall the last time we saw characters partaking in dangerous space drugs? Saturn 3? That was the first one, but not the most Blue recent. Blue Dreamers? <laughs> Blue Dreamers from Saturn 3. I have two other examples. Dangerous space drugs. Um, well, there was that one in the cave on... Um, uh, what was the name of that movie? Shoot. Battle Beyond the Stars. Battle Beyond the Stars, yeah. That's my third example, but he doesn't actually he doesn't take, take the them, drug. But he's, it's an opportunity to right. take drugs. But can you remember the last time someone took space drugs? I'll give you a clue. They took the drugs on Earth. I can tell you the specific drug, and that might help also. It was Space Coke. Galaxina? <laughs> Cheech and Chong's next movie. <laughs> What? At the end of the film, the aliens give Chong uh, space coke, and then he brings it back to Cheech, and then Cheech smokes it, and he blasts off into the atmosphere, remember? Okay. I blanked out that movie. Because <laughs> it's so good. Because you're so high. <laughs> Outland's polydichloric euthamol is a fictional drug that shows up again in T2 Judgment Day as an explosive. 
That's what all those yellow barrels are full of when they blow up the laboratory. That actually would go into something I'm going to say a little later when we get to Shepard's office. Okay. So I, I love the knowing that. <laughs> Dr. Lazarus tells O'Neill that they don't have the equipment to make it here and that it must be shipped in. O'Neill suspects that's why autopsies are not being performed on the dead here. So it does seem crazy that Dr. Lazarus is not even so much as taking a blood sample from one of these corpses. Mm-hmm. Like, she's really lax on, like, okay, whatever, they told me to send the bodies that way, I guess I'll do that. Doesn't check into anything. Sorry, do you do more work than you're asked to at work? <laughs> if my job were doctor and and it became a shipping department, like, she has a medical license. She Presumably she took a Hippocratic oath, right? I, uh, I'm just saying. She's not doing any harm to anybody. Yeah, I think there are any she harm. Is, her neglect is doing harm to people. Uh, okay. I, I think she needed uh, O'Neill to come and inspire her because right. she's to doing the- To resurrect her, so to speak. <laughs> she, she's doing the exact thing that he said he couldn't bring himself to do later on in the movie. Right. She's yeah. part of the machine. Yep. O'Neill suspects that the company has a hand in distributing these narcotics that increase their output and don't take a toll on their employees until the end of their year-long tours in the mine. Back at the computer in his own living quarters, O'Neill Googles the number of employees with criminal records, 17. Then he cross-checks that against drug-related crimes and gets two results, Nicholas Spada and Russell Yario. Spada works in leisure and Yario works in shipping. Both were hired by Mark Shepard, the Peter Boyle character. <laughs> I thought, <laughs> oh, I thought that those were their drug offenses. Like he was arrested for using it leisurely, but the other one was like a dealer, and was no. like those were the future terms. Like, like it's not recre. Not today we would call it recreational and distribution. Yeah. But in the future they call it leisure and shipping. <laughs> right. He was he was a dealer, so he's shipping. <laughs> yeah. There you go. <laughs> I thought they were future terms. <laughs> I thought this was a pretty easy clue path. Like, I got to be honest. It's I know, I know that's easy. not the point. It's not yeah. like, a, but this is a very easy procedural clue path. Here. Yeah, we shouldn't be able to use search engines in these <laughs> movies. We cut to the bar where nude dancers perform under conical lasers, like the ones we've seen in Graydon Clark's *The Return* for intergalactic portals, or the final countdown for time portals. At first, I thought these dancers were holograms, mm-hmm. but they're clearly clipping outside of the laser cones that they're dancing in. So oh, I, I thought they were holograms also. Okay. okay. And there's more than just dancing happening in some of these cones. Right. But it's very precisely lit in such a way that you don't see the sex that's happening, but <laughs> sex is clearly happening just judging from the silhouette of yeah. what's going you, on. You, know, you don't look directly into the sex cone. <laughs> but... That's what they say. The but cone of sex. <laughs> what, what sold me on these not being holograms is the fact that later when people are calling in sick all over the place, these sex workers are not here. Oh, but the lasers I didn't are even on. notice that. Yeah. Oh, excellent eye. O'Neill surveils the club with security cameras. He keeps an eye on Spada as he moves around the club and eventually sits down at a table to conduct business. O'Neill notices Shepard enter the room and take a seat at a different table with Sergeant Montone. Spada and Yario join them at the second table. He can see them talking, but in the crowded room, he obviously can't hear them. But this reminded me of HAL 9000 watching Bowman and Poole talk to each other about unplugging the computer in 2001. We cut from here to a racquetball court where O'Neill and Montone are facing off. Different sections of the wall are lighting up as they take turns hitting the ball. O'Neill doesn't waste a lot of time before accusing Montone of working with the criminals. How deep are you in? Not too deep. I'm paid to look the other way. O'Neill announces his intention to bust Shepard, and Montone tries to give him an idea of what he's up against. The general manager here has connections higher up in the company. Montone asks if he is expected to resign, but
but O'Neill expects that he's not after the sergeant. O'Neill continues surveilling Spada from the security office. Spada suspiciously ducks into a corridor with Yario for a moment, and then we see them come out and go their separate ways. O'Neill collects a shotgun to confront him. Spada meets up with another Conam employee in a locker room, presumably to conduct a handoff, and O'Neill finds them there. As soon as O'Neill sees him, the chase begins. O'Neill stays right on his heels. He isn't quite as agile, but he takes every opportunity to head Spada off at the pass and cuts corners to catch up with him. O'Neill levels a shotgun at Spada's back and shouts for him to stop in a narrow corridor. Spada calls his bluff and keeps running, slamming shut a large metal door along the way. Yeah, um, I I was wondering why he didn't shoot until much later right. when we realized, oh, this is just plastic. Yeah, we're walking <laughs> through a balloon tunnel, basically. <laughs> O'Neill has to take some time to unlock this door before he can open it and resume the chase. For whatever reason, Spada didn't think to close every door along this whole hallway. <laughs> I wrote that would have slowed him down a lot. I wrote that down as well. I was like, oh my God, this is like so stupid. This is bad strategy. Yeah, by it him. takes you <laughs> one second to close the door and 20 seconds to open it. Do this to every door. Yes. But what is his What is his strategy? Like, what's his idea here? You're on a space yeah. station. Like, where exactly do you think you're going to go? Are you just running long enough to be able to kill him on the other end? I, I guess, yeah. I don't understand what your plan is. I, I believe what will happen in the climax of this chase is that he's trying to figure out a way to get rid of these drugs so that he won't have okay. anything. When he finally does catch him... He's got to flush his stash before yeah. he gets right. caught. But he does it in the stupidest possible <laughs> yeah. way. The two men continue their chase through the cafeteria and into its kitchen, where Spada stupidly dumps the package he just bought in a pot of boiling water right in front of O'Neill. Even more stupidly, <laughs> O'Neill reaches in with his bare hand instead of just dumping the water or scooping yeah. out the drugs with any of the many utensils in this room. There's mm-hmm. a fry cooker right over there. Use that. Scoop them up. Done. Well, maybe it's like, maybe they're at like a really low air pressure. So the water boils at a much at room lower temperature. T- <laughs> <laughs> They'd all be dead, wouldn't they? No, no. It's like, it's like, like, it's like if you're, you know, at like, uh, if you're at like 5,000 feet above sea level, Right. You know, it's really difficult to boil anything because the water boils at a low temperature. Right. But either way, it's hotter than like a human could stand the yeah. air to be because they would explode. Yeah. Like, they'd all look like uh, Cliff Clavin. <laughs> Which is weird because his mother is in the <laughs> Yeah, <story. laughs> that's true. Spada starts smashing things over O'Neill's head and eventually chokes him over a deep fryer until O'Neill gives him a good kidney punch and then rams his head into an industrial mixer. O'Neill turns his back on Spada long enough for him to find a huge sharp knife, which he then uses to slice open O'Neill's shoulder. Why did you just turn away from this guy? He's not unconscious. O'Neill trains the shotgun on Spada one more time and then fires it immediately around him to indicate his abilities with the weapon. I think Spada knows you're good with a shotgun and you're apparently not willing to kill him. So this is not, you're not selling this idea. Not a real threat. Later, we see Spada has been locked up in a zero-G cell, which is the punishment that they give prisoners at this colony. The prisoners are dressed in a spacesuit with an oxygen tether and left floating in the middle of a small room, almost like a sensory deprivation chamber. Seems excessive. Yeah. yeah. I, I, I really didn't like this. I, I, like that this said, is how their jail works? Like, I like you said before, there's one-sixth of gravity outside. Okay. And they have artificial gravity inside... I can buy that too. But they also have artificial zero gravity. Yeah, you can also make. <laughs> I was like, okay, this is too many layers. Very yeah. localized. But actually, right. it's it's not zero gravity, and we'll come back to that yeah, later. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Although I, 
because it is kind of like a sensory deprivation tank, I kind of wanted him to just turn into a caveman and bust out of the window. <laughs> <laughs> he goes in and it turns on the light, there's just a vortex of liquid spinning around. And just a face comes out of it. O'Neill picks up a phone outside the cell and asks Spada how much Shepard pays him to distribute the 400 doses he was caught running with. And of course, Spada plays dumb. O'Neill tells Spada how much he's going to love hanging out in this cell. Oh, and sometimes the... Uh... The air teller gets knotted and uh, a man suffocates, but that doesn't happen too often. O'Neill, piss off. O'Neill leaves to speak with Shepard in his office where he's practicing putting. Right away, Shepard asks what kind of a bribe O'Neill is looking for. Shepard tries to make himself sound like the good guy, pointing out that the hookers here are clean, the liquor's good, his workers are paid well, and when they work hard, which is what they do under the influence of his drugs, they also earn bonuses, except those few poor souls who commit suicide before the end of their tour. Keep in mind there are 1,250 laborers in these mines. I don't imagine they're wasting drugs on anybody else. It's just the yeah. people who are mining. Yeah, and and I imagine that there are some users who are regulating themselves pretty good. Like sure. you know, like they, they, they take a like a jolt here now and then. Um, I feel like we're only focusing on the true deeply in addicts. Right. But also, since we have the deadline of eleven to twelve months, it's like it seems like it seems like those are the people you should keep an eye on. Or maybe cut it down to nine months. Make the tour nine months and then you don't have to explain away all these deaths or yeah. ruin your employees. But then you're releasing people to die outside of your control also. Or you can't cover it up. That's true. And there might be addicts. So, might be so it's addicts. actually helpful to hold on to the, the most affected people until they die because then they're <laughs> not going to bring clues out into the world. Notice that Shepard is is practicing his putting here, and I immediately thought of Giovanni Ribisi in Avatar oh, yeah. practicing his putting and also commenting on his game, just as Peter Boyle does here. That's true. And like it, coupled with what you said about the Terminator 2 and that like uh, label on those canisters, it makes me feel like that James Cameron is a fan of this movie. Yeah. You know, like certainly, like obviously Aliens and, you know, Alien was before this, but then Aliens builds on that whole uh, crooked corporation and like the look of everything so like it's very interesting to see like the filmmakers taking little pieces i would actually rather have had them mining for unobtainium here <laughs> <laughs> uh if we keep in mind that in the last six months plus the previous six months 52 people have died in a year that represents five percent of the entire mining workforce so yeah. one in 20 guys alarming. is killing themselves shepherd assumes that this good guy routine is a strategy to increase his bribe but o'neill turns him down again Shepard has apparently read O'Neill's full record as a marshal and sees that he gets the shit detail all over the solar system because of his big mouth. It reminds me of Nick Angel from Hot Fuzz getting sent off to the middle of nowhere because he keeps embarrassing the authorities with a super cop attitude. Leaving the office, O'Neill is reminded that not taking the money is a dangerous option. O'Neill wanders back over to Spada's zero-g cell, and when he flips the lights on, he sees that Spada has been killed. His oxygen tether has been severed, and blood is dripping upward out of it, meaning this is not a zero G cell, but a negative one G cell. <laughs> it's how they create the gravity in yeah. the artificial gravity. They pump out all the anti-gravitons. Yeah. <laughs> the, that's you where know, they into the, the juice. Yeah. I, I mean, I suppose that would be a weird form of torture where the gravity is on the ceiling and they have you tethered to the floor. <laughs> I was like, I don't know if I'd like that. Also, no, probably not. Excessively unnecessary. You could have chained that, you know, by hanging somebody up from the ceiling. <laughs> or just put them in a cage like all of your workers. Yeah. Like, I feel like I'd rather be in this zero G cell <laughs> than the stupid cages. There's at least walls here. Well, and, and the fact that the zero G requires you to be in a suit. 
Right. Like, like, like that there's some kind of extreme forces outside of this suit. Well, I assumed that it was because we don't see the ceiling in this room. I assume that it was open to space. Oh God. But then that would, that's even more terrifying. I don't don't know. I don't know what the, how this is working exactly. O'Neill heads to Montone's quarters and he finds him strung up in his closet dead. His tongue is swollen and purple in his mouth. O'Neill returns to his personal computer where he receives a private message coded your eyes only, which is funny because that's almost the name of a Bond film. That was not a Connery Bond film. The message is just two words, food shipment, and the message came from Montone. It seems he anticipated his own murder and sent a message along to aid O'Neill's investigation. I suppose it's also possible at this point that Montone committed suicide out of shame for his part in the scheme, but I still think this is supposed to be a murder. Yeah. But he could have been like, oh, you know what? He's right. This is terrible of me. Sent a message, killed himself. What's the book say? (laughs) I haven't read the novelization. And I don't want to get too far ahead, but do you think that he sent this message? Oh. I I think he must have. I, I can see why you're saying he might not have, but I, I, I think it, it would be too huge a risk for him not to have sent the message. Like, send him to a place where the drugs aren't if you're just trying to trap That's him. Right, right. I Touché. think. Yeah, okay. O'Neill heads to the food storage area and walks into a frozen meat locker. He's surprised from behind by one of Shepard's henchmen with a garrote wire and struggles against the choking for a moment before collapsing. But it turns out he faked his collapse and he surprises his attacker by smashing him from behind into a large hanging slab of meat, breaking his nose, and then knocking the man out. He you pulled guys- a Richard. Yeah. Yeah, that's Richard's plan. <laughs> I'm going to fake my death early and then, you know, not die. There you go. <laughs> Do you guys recall the last time we had a character pretend to be suffocated to give them a chance of surviving when we had that conversation about Richard? Was it happy birthday to me? It was happy birthday to me. O'Neill removes a garrote-proof neck guard from his <laughs> collar. <laughs> really? Really? Well, like, of all the ways you could potentially be ambushed, mm-hmm. how why did he know that that was the way? Why I gotta d- say, I was so confused by this. Yeah. I also, yes, I, I, I actually, it took me a long time to understand what that was, and I thought maybe I just misunderstood it until you concur that that's what that was. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, that's well, what that was. But I like, wouldn't believe the scene without <laughs> this moment. But. Is he also wearing a bulletproof vest and, like, other things to protect himself from being shot or stabbed? And, and also, the face. <laughs> he took some antidotes for all kinds of different poisons. <laughs> Very Batman. Is, is Yario the only person who garrots people? Why are you taking it off now? Just leave well, it on. Well, I, <laughs> well, I mean, it is it is the the like Phantom of the Opera. Uh, like he always garrots people, and so like the woman tries to warn the the, the Duke, like it's like keep your hand at the level of your eye, in case, yeah. in case someone tries to come around you. So maybe that's just his. Just walk around like this all day. <laughs> hi, hi. I have a question. Hello. I have a question. I forget my question, but I can keep my hand up. Yeah, don't, 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 don't grow up me. Where's the bathroom? Uh, it seems to be. Oh, but but you know what? Because Montone, because Montone was garroted. Well, he was. Like, oh, yeah, that's true. He okay, was. He I was didn't hung, even though, think about he? that. It was made to look he was, like he was a hung from a garrote wire. Uh-huh. Oh, okay. okay. That's iffy, but better than what I thought. So yeah. maybe he put it on to protect himself if he decided to commit suicide later. <laughs> Okay. Why would you want to protect yourself <laughs> one, one from more your own question. suicide? One more. All right. Okay. Let's hear it. So now 
was he intending to ambush like how long has he been in this freezer waiting to attack him like was he just there you can't business? be in those things for very long well, but that's what i'm saying was he just there like collecting the product and and it just so happened that he walked in and he attacked him or did or was he waiting to ambush him like how long have you been waiting in this freezer i think he was literally going in there to collect the package and or was, one of the baggies okay so it was an attack purely because he had the opportunity right it, it, okay. it was just an unfortunate coincidence for yario that that o'neill found the place at the same time that he was in there grabbing the next bag yeah because i thought i i thought that it's yario 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 yeah. i thought that Yar- it's like wario's cousin <laughs> <laughs> i thought that yario was planning this ambush because of course when i was watching the film i wasn't sure that that yario or shepherd didn't send that message intentionally right. to get him to go to the place yeah i i feel like they wouldn't send him where the drugs were on purpose because that's just too risky what happened to yario after this i'm just realizing i don't remember he goes in a zero g cell we don't see it but why would he just, he's says just gonna get killed just like the other guy. No, no, no. So, something completely different will happen, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. The definition of insanity, just right? Just leave him in the meat freezer. Yeah, exactly. I, thought, I, thought, <laughs> yeah. I just assumed he left him in just the meat freezer. Just hang freeze. him up, you know, keep him clean. <laughs> or you can, like, you know, tauntaun him inside in one of those big pork loins or something like that. <laughs> It'd be like the guy at the end of uh, Goodfellas that's hang- hung up in the meat truck. O'Neill starts digging through the meat package that he used to break the henchman's nose, and he finds long strings of connected baggies of red fluid. If the container he confiscated before was 400 doses, this is probably a quarter million doses. It, it reminds me, do you ever have like one of those toys where it's like a little baggie full of fluid, mm-hmm. but it was like a, it was a, like a inverted cylinder where you just kept like. Yes, absolutely. Oh, yeah, yeah yes. I don't, I don't yes. know what it's like a sea it. slug. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. <laughs> do you put your put it on your wrist? Or I don't. It wasn't. And it was never that big enough. Oh, but okay. like, but you, but you squeeze it and it would roll out of your hand very yeah. glad you said wrist because i didn't think that's where you were going with that <laughs> oh yeah i've got a website that sells those they're great um i'm surprised this stuff doesn't freeze if they keep it in the deep freezer all the time it must have an incredible freezing temperature mm. it's like and, and, and boiling temperature yeah that's true <laughs> i thought you were gonna say that it reminded you of otter pops before you separate them <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, because I think it was the bag earlier that looked like the like the one that he threw in the boiling right, water right, that right. looked which like is, that. Which is just one of these cut off of the string. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this yeah. this one is just like a like a long sheet of of squares of this liquid. Yeah. and I imagine they just cut one off and sell what's in the little square mm-hmm. and then come back. We cut to Shepard's office again. This time he's practicing his drive instead of putting. He has one of those screens that you can hit golf balls into that shows you how far the ball would have gone. O'Neill stops by to say hello and catch Shepard up on some recent events. Hey, Shepard, guess what I just found in a meat locker? You know, I have a feeling that you'll tell me even if I don't guess. 250 pounds of hamburger named Yario that works for you. I also found your shipment of PDE. So I threw the hamburger in the jail and the PDE in the toilet. Or was it the other way around? I can't remember now. Wait a second, you just flushed eight gallons of evidence down the toilet? <laughs> that was dumb. Shepard is surprised himself. Did you really destroy the entire shipment? Yes. You do have a flair for the dramatic. Was it expensive? More than you can ever imagine. Shepard backtracks a bit and implies that losing the shipment was a mild inconvenience. <laughs> it's like, more than I can imagine and yet you don't care? If this is a synthetic drug, unless the ingredients are rare, which they don't seem to be chemically, 
then the loss of this amount of the drug shouldn't actually set them back too much unless they're getting a million percent markup when they sell it to the users. Either way, those people are blowing their money at the company store, so really the biggest loss would be the dip in productivity mm-hmm. when the men aren't all methed out in the mines. Well, we don't know what kind of withdrawal symptoms there are. That's true. <laughs> Just destroy everything. As O'Neill leaves the office, Shepard offers a final warning. You're dead. It's <laughs> <laughs> not so much a warning. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, going to give uh, you one more way, chance. Avoid dying. <laughs> From outside the facility, we hear an electronic communication between Shepard and someone named Bellows, who's apparently off-site. Shepard asks Bellows to send over two of his best men to deal with the situation. The previous pair, Spada and Yario, were also a gift from Bellows, but they're both incapacitated. We see O'Neill fiddling with an electronic kiosk labeled General Manager, and when he's done, he locks the box up tight. I really liked the devices inside yeah but the outside just looks like a bunch of painted milk crates right but <laughs> inside like, it's like fiber optic cables yeah i was and... like oh this is so neat and then he lowers that thing i was like oh that's less neat yeah <laughs> why only two guys also i i feel like <laughs> i feel like more. that's an iffy decision on yeah. his part i guess if he can't get it done with two then this guy's not worth like his general managership yeah yeah <laughs> I do, I do like how Bellows just sounds like a really annoyed boss. Be like, what happened to the guys they already gave you? Yeah. <laughs> well, there's a larger question, which just continues throughout from this point, of who is Sean Connery working for, O'Neill working for? Like the police, some governmental organization, right? Yeah. But he doesn't seem to be able to call for reinforcements at all. Right. Or even like it's unclear, even if he has evidence or catches someone red-handed, what power does he have? It's very Western-like, I suppose, in that way. Yeah, because if he doesn't have anybody to back him up, then, you know, he has to wrestle these people into the zero-G cell himself. Yes. And and even if he calls his superiors, who who's to say how high up this goes because the implications so far have been this goes all the way up the ladder perhaps even with inside the marshal service do the marshals work for conam it's not really clear to me if they're an independent agency or because they they are federal marshals that's what i thought but it says security on their patches which is very weird but then later on when the people confront him they're like you're supposed to protect us he make they make it sound like he is part of a governmental organization yeah Uh, so i also was just confused on what because he has other team members but like they don't step up so it feels like they're on the take as well yeah. so i'm like are they part of the company are they getting the bonuses because everyone's taking drugs i think they're... for sure they are getting money out of it yeah so basically but... it's like everybody here is getting paid money for knowing about this conspiracy and o'neill's the only person who doesn't know and until he admits to how much he's going to get paid no one will tell him that it's official that it's a real conspiracy mm-hmm. but imagine how easy things would be if they did tell him and he did accept a bribe because then people could just walk around and be like hey drugs drugs just walking Mm -hmm. around they don't have to hide it anymore because everyone already knows except for this one guy but the last marshal seemed to know they make implications that the last marshal was taking a bribe so something happened to that guy but no i think his tour ended right maybe but but i feel like i would just hold on to that guy if he was cool with it but 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 what i'm saying is like did they change their attitude? Like they're like, oh shit, new marshals coming. Everybody stop, stop uh, flagrantly playing with drugs until until, until we get, get him on contract. Yeah, because <laughs> because maybe he's an idiot and he'll just won't know what's going on. Right, and he'll just accidentally like, blurt like it our out doctor. To <laughs> <laughs> what do you guys think happened to Spada? I just thought he was left at the freezer. No, that's Yari. Yeah, oh, Yari. sorry, the other guy. The oh. guy in the cell. 
Well, somebody sabotaged him so that he wouldn't. Who did that? Shepard, I assumed. No, I think it was, uh, uh, oh, God, uh, the guy who, sergeant who comes after him later. The new sergeant. Oh, okay. Yeah. The new sergeant. Do yeah. you um, think he did that? Yeah, I have his name later. Oh, but I can't because, think of be- because had it had access. to be an inside job. Because it obviously wasn't Yario. And if it was Shepard, that would be a really awkward conversation when he's like, what happened to the last two guys I gave you? And he's like, well, I just murdered one of them. <laughs> Yeah, in, in a jail cell that I have access to, and the other one's in another jail cell that I have access to. So I, I could have just let them both out, but I didn't do that. But yeah, that makes sense that it would be the other person that's involved. But he might also just not have that control because he's, you know, he's he's not law enforcement on this That's place. true, yeah. Officer Ballard fills O'Neill in on the calls from the previous shift. Nothing crazy. O'Neill asks why Ballard isn't wearing his sergeant stripes, and he says that he felt weird doing it so soon after Montone's death. O'Neill tells him to wear them anyway. In his private office in the security room, O'Neill pulls up all the communications made by Shepard since he hijacked the general manager kiosk. We learn from the first call that he watches that the company actually isn't in on the drug running, but they are likely willfully ignorant since the system is working to their benefit. Drugs are being dealt to the general managers of all the stations, and they're all reaping the benefits through bonuses they're getting from corporate. What O'Neill should have done, right here, is written an email and CC'd whatever press exists in the future to announce the drug running operation to the company and present the samples that he intercepted and did not flush, (laughs) but he flushed them, and then include these illicit communications that he has recorded on his computer as evidence. The company loses the franchise, the workers' lives are saved, and the drug runners go broke, but none of that happens. In the rest of the call, Bellows says that new men will arrive on Sunday, the two that he ordered, and Shepard tells Bellows that O'Neill is the target, and he will have no help when the word spreads that these men are professional assassins. He claims to have someone on the inside who will help spread the word. There's only a few characters left at this point that he might be referring to, unless it's someone we haven't met yet, but the obvious two would be either Dr. Lazarus or Sergeant Ballard. Shepard, I've got to tell you, if this doesn't work out, the next guys who come for someone will be coming for you. No sweat. I'll call you when it's over. Back at the bar, the laser dancers continue fucking on stage. (laughs) O'Neill enters, and everyone shuts up as they see him. He looks at the counter on the wall and sees that the next shuttle is arriving in 60 hours. We cut forward 10 hours, and O'Neill is gesturing for Ballard to speak with him in his private office in the security corner. He asks Ballard how many in the security office he can count on to side with him. Ballard doesn't seem super confident. Most of us, uh, most are young. You know, we have families. I have a family. I have nipples, Greg. Could you milk me? (laughs) (laughs) Hey, just because, you know, the Marshal doesn't have work-life balance doesn't mean everybody else shouldn't. (laughs) That's true. We see the timer again, 40 hours and 17 minutes. We cut to O'Neill on the racquetball court alone. And Lazarus enters to speak with him. She pokes fun at him while composing a handy metaphor for the entire situation. That's pretty good. Playing by yourself and losing. She takes a seat against the wall and tells him that she has a surprising number of workers planning to stay in their quarters sick this Sunday. She tells him that he seems like a smart guy and wonders why he hasn't left yet. O'Neill worries aloud that maybe he was sent here because he's so good at the job that the station legitimately wanted it cleaned up but I wonder if a big part of him sticking around isn't just a sunken cost fallacy. The position already cost him his wife and son, so he might as well stick it out and finish the job before he leaves. Your wife is one stupid lady. You want to go get drunk? 
Surprisingly, the answer is... Yes. 20 hours left. Whenever they show the clock, and I'm hoping it's just for the audience's benefit that we hear this obnoxious ticking. Clicking sound, yeah. <laughs> because... If it's that loud in the bar... Yeah, or like, that loud... I'm trying to have an erection here. <laughs> <laughs> I can't top that. Uh... But like even in like uh, Peter Boyle's office, it's clicking, yeah. and it's like, oh man, that would drive me nuts. Yeah, I would go insane. It's like, <laughs> all right, just that's mute that's why thing. the spiders were appearing. Yeah. Yeah. It's the clock. <laughs> the drug is actually it's has every no side week effects. that this clock is counting down. <laughs> oh, that's true. Does it make this sound for every shuttle? <laughs> yeah, it's like it would be giving me constant anxiety. Just yeah. there's always a ticking clock running. <laughs> Everyone just cries with joy when whenever the shuttle arrives. They're like, oh, thank God, the clock will turn off for twelve hours. Like two and a, yeah, for two and a half days it's clicking oh, <laughs> every week <laughs> the, 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 the shuttle will will remain for 10 hours click click oh, no. <laughs> we see a montage of o'neill moving around the ship fiddling with various instruments door switches cameras 10 hours left o'neill's in his quarters when a call comes through from his wife carol the shuttle is nine hours and 35 minutes away carol informs him that now they have reservations on a ship from the space station to earth Reservations are for three. That was thoughtful. Please. I can't. Why, for God's sake? I just can't. He shuts her down without explaining his specific predicament, but she can read from his curtness that he's in danger, but he won't confirm. He gets a quick moment to speak with his son, Polly, before the communication ends, and it's kind of an awkward conversation. Yeah, I I don't... (laughs) I don't like this kid. <laughs> yeah, you've you've made your opinion of this child known. I think in our Saturn Three review. Yeah, I, I I don't like this kid. I I I don't like how he calls him daddy. Yeah, he's old for daddy. I think. Yeah, and I was like, oh, and it's just like I don't. You don't need the son. Just have it be the wife that yeah, ran off. That's it fine. Doesn't it worked for high noon. We didn't yeah. need a kid. It's odd that this kid has no accent. His wife's British. He's Scottish, I guess. Yeah. He's Sean Connery, whatever. Yeah. Uh, and his his son seems to have an American accent, but yeah. the actor was born in London when I looked him up. It's well, not his voice. But he's never been to Earth. <laughs> <laughs> he has a space accent. Wait, he was dubbed? Yeah, he's dubbed. Okay, look it's forward to hearing about voice. this. Okay, yeah. okay. I love you, Daddy. I love you too, Paul. Uh, considering how easy it would have been to reshoot this with a different kid, I'm surprised they didn't. But the kid is making all kinds of goofy faces as he talks, and he was completely dubbed over in post because they were not happy with the voice that he was doing. But it reminds me, actually, when you're talking about the nationalities of his parents that we talked about in The Shining, that they did all these exhaustive auditions and that they claimed they settled on the the kid because he was exactly between Shelley Duvall and Jack Nicholson's voices. And it's like, does he have enough lines to notice that? <laughs> what a I, weird. I don't remember that. Yeah. Yeah, also, he's doing a... He's doing a fake voice for yeah. half of his life. Yeah, that's like, true. Most of most of the stuff is Maybe that's the one that's halfway through. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's the voice they wanted. Again, I'm reminded of Haywood Floyd from 2001 speaking with his daughter, actually Vivian Kubrick, on a video screen from a spaceship. That scene worked really well because the kid wasn't acting. She was literally just talking to her father. Both conversations involved the father missing upcoming birthdays and offering extravagant presents as apologies. In the bar again, all these sex workers have called in sick, and the laser cones are empty, but still on, just so there's a nice circle yeah. on the bar top. The countdown on the wall says the shuttle arrives in 92 minutes. We get another quick montage of O'Neill hiding shotguns all over the ship for the approaching battle. I was reminded here of Home Alone 
which in turn reminded me of the end of another Bond film, Skyfall, where a character specifically written for Connery hides shotguns in the floorboards of the titular Skyfall mansion. Can I add that uh, O'Neill had 60 hours to go full A-team in <laughs> preparation and basically did nothing. He yeah. played racquetball by himself. He got drunk. He just wandered around. And he could have like just killed these guys as soon as they got off. Yeah, a bit of a procrastinator. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You just you just blow up the landing pad, and then <laughs> yeah. Well, there's other it. people. There's other people. <laughs> there could it's be not just so two many booby traps. <laughs> so many booby traps. Well, I think he needs blow it up before the shuttle lands on it. Not, yeah, yeah, yeah. not when it lands. No, yeah, not, 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 don't kill the shuttle. <laughs> That's what I thought you meant. <laughs> no, no, no. Just blow up the landing pad so the shuttle has to turn back. Just murder everybody at this whole station. Yeah, that's then not you're that safe. Was your solution. Oh no. Well, he will end up murdering everyone at the whole <laughs> that's station. That's true. He will. <laughs> Long enough term. <laughs> Outside the ship, we can see a light blinking in the sea of stars, and it looks like the shuttle's arriving early today. Forty-two minutes early. O'Neill enters the cafeteria, and everyone shuts up to look at him as he pleads for any assistance they will offer. I could use a little help. Which calls to mind a scene from High Noon. When Gary Cooper, as Marshal Will Kane, sounds great. I love Gary Cooper. Goes to the church and asks for the men to help him protect the city. Maybe some of you already know it, but if you don't, it looks like Frank Miller's coming back on the noon train. I need all the special deputies I can get. Though in that scene, a bunch of men volunteer to help, but are talked out of it by a series of townspeople complaining. One churchgoer doesn't understand why it's their job to help him. We've been paying good money right along for a marshal and deputies. Now the first time there's any trouble, we're supposed to take care of it ourselves. Well, what have we been paying for all this time? In the Outland cafeteria, nobody offers anything but complaints, including a man echoing the sentiments of that high noon churchgoer. You're supposed to protect us. You're the police. It's your job. Where are your men? My men? My men are shit. Do you guys recall the last time we covered a character complaining that his men were shit? Any which way you can. We heard John Quaid as Chola lament, Why me, Lord? I mean, you made other men out of clay. Mine, you made out of shit. We cut to the landing pad where the shuttle is approaching and back to O'Neill's quarters where he's loading a shotgun. Men all over the facility are battening down the hatches as the shuttle touches down. O'Neill races to his office to man the security cameras as the assassins ride the elevator down from the shuttle. O'Neill watches as they assemble rifles in a hallway, and one of them, it looks like, puts a scope on a shotgun. Yeah. <laughs> Is that necessary? Well, also, it's important to note, as Jesse mentioned earlier, that I was like, why don't you just take out the whole shuttle? But um, there are other people who must be very confused <laughs> yeah. stepping off of the shuttle to like, like where's everybody going yeah empty hallways and they also like they look like dylan claybold and uh, eric what's his name like setting down their duffel bags and assembling their guns in the hallway well because they keep doing like they it, it, right before this they do this montage of just ship basically looking completely empty right like all the areas that we saw overcrowded with people the locker rooms the dorm areas the hallways like nothing it's totally empty and my question is, I know we see a very full bar area. That's like where everybody went. But did are there 2,000 people in this bar? I think I think they're either at the bar just to wait for to see who survives the clash or 
they're in their rooms, like locked up. But they weren't in their but rooms. But they weren't we, in so their we passed bunks. That's by true. The I forgot bunks. their room is completely transparent also, from end to end, so we would have seen any person. Yeah. I also wondered where they were, and I also must reiterate, he wouldn't have to be rushing if he'd loaded the shotgun in one of the earlier 60 hours <laughs> yeah. he had. But also these two uh, hired guns would have been much smarter just to follow the rest of the crowd into the facility rather than... Yeah, so than that they wouldn't stand out as the assassins. <laughs> yeah. yeah. They gave themselves away immediately. O'Neill grabs one of the weapons and busts through the metallic saloon doors of the security office. We see in an insert that one of the assassins seems to have a glass eye, it looks like. Like, one of them is off-color, but then the whole rest of the movie, he just has two normal eyes. So this threw me off. I thought, I thought we had a glass eye situation. We don't. Shepard waits in the bar for news while the gunmen stalk the halls of the facility. As O'Neill moves through the darkened cafeteria, sparks explode from the table beside him as one of the hitmen fires down from the grate above the ceiling. O'Neill returns fire and the man scampers off. The other killer has O'Neill in his scope, but the scope must be broken or something because dude totally misses again. For a second time in a row, dumb luck has spared our hero, but shortly after he dives to the ground, he does take a shot in the shoulder. Isn't it the same shoulder that he got sliced open earlier? Is it? I think it is. He got slashed on this side because he was facing away. Yeah. And then he got shot there. Yeah, yeah I it's think the he same gets, place. Yeah, it's the same spot. I'm like, that's got a smart. They didn't want to build a second scar on the makeup <laughs> team. We see O'Neill make a run for it, and somebody watches his escape path on the bay of monitors in the security office. He opens one of the floor panels where he stashed a shotgun, and it's empty. He moves away again, and we notice he's leaving a trail of blood behind him. He notices a door opening ahead of him and prepares to drop the people's elbow until he sees at the last second that it's Dr. Lazarus. She's the one who saw him on the monitors, and she's here to help treat his wound. The whole ship seems empty now, as the entire crew are actively avoiding this confrontation, except for Lazarus, for whatever reason. O'Neill searches through the lockers in the locker room until he finds a spacesuit. Lazarus offers to help, and he asks her to lock down the access corridors from Central Control to lead the assassins into Sector C5. O'Neill moves outside through the airlock. Lazarus moves through the ship, entering the wrong password on a bunch of doors to make them auto-lock. It was like, like six, 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 six. It was all yeah. sixes, yeah. yes. And I thought, is that the code, or what's she doing? Well, all the all the doors light up red when she enters the wrong code, okay. so I think they, they lock for a certain amount of time, which is forcing these guys in a direction. You, can't, you cannot unlock your uh, iPad for five minutes. Right, exactly. <laughs> like, exactly. To the password wrong too many times. She moves through a different door and then locks it behind her. Outside, we see O'Neill jumping around in low gravity and climbing across the scaffolding outside the ship corridors. He watches from outside as one of the killers moves through the hallway below him. Lazarus sneaks up behind the same gunman and successfully locks him in this hallway. He unloads his shotgun into the door as she locks it, and O'Neill, above the corridor, triggers an explosion that causes the tunnel to decompress rapidly and the assassin's head inflates to explosion. This is where I confirmed he does not have a glass eye because both eyes look the same yeah. as his head is exploding. But it seems like shooting at this door was already a terrible idea because mm-hmm. if these bullets deflect and tear through the like rubber tubing that is the yeah. outer wall of the corridor, you're going to die. But if his head is exploding, aren't both of his eyes and all of the rest of his head fake? But one looked completely discolored, like like Early he didn't running. have a pupil. Yeah, when they but first I'm saying this head together. that's exploding is not his own. <laughs> that's true. Maybe they used real human eyes in the exploding head. <laughs> I guess they're both fake eyes at that point. That's what I'm saying. So he has two fake eyes. I don't know how he was finding his way around exploding. the ship. That's what I want to know. The eyes are fine. The other assassin continues into the enormous greenhouse area. 
Lazarus returns to the security monitor bay, where she is surprised by Sergeant Ballard. O'Neill watches the second gunman moving around the greenhouse and occasionally pointing his gun in random directions. O'Neill manages to confuse him by yanking a big shutter panel off of the greenhouse windows and tossing it down to the moon below. The genius assassin decides to use the panel falling past the windows outside for target practice and <laughs> shoots through the greenhouse walls. The entire wall of glass is instantly sucked into the vacuum of space with all the air in this section of the colony and all the plants that the employees were meant to survive on. I, I don't I don't even know if they were meant to survive on for consumption. It's just for alcohol. It's just, no, no, it's just for producing air. Oh, maybe. That's like, true. He just he just took out the air supply for the entire <laughs> which again leads to me to like we were talking about earlier about this facility has no emergency situations. Like like this whole room is open to the outside. Right. Like, but emergency services can be here in seventy hours. I don't know what you're worried about. <laughs> It doesn't seal like I thought for sure. Like once the glass was broken, like shutters were gonna like come down and like close it off. Like after the guy up. got sucked out, yeah, that'd have been great. Why didn't they do that? And there's just one hole in the shutters where he ripped off that panel. Yeah, so he still killed the whole ship. Yeah, so this was the moment where I was just like, this reminds me of Silent Running. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah, Silent Running, and <laughs> you just have every time one of the greenhouses explodes, like Bruce Dern is just sobbing in his office. <laughs> But we see the gunman here getting sucked out into the newly opened window, and then he just explodes into meat shreds as soon as he leaves the yeah. facility. It's a really bad effect. <laughs> yeah. It's probably the worst effect of the whole movie. For sure, because actually everything else is pretty decent. Lazarus busts into the bar looking for someone, I'm not sure who, and Shepard at his table sees her come in, and he just sits quietly. O'Neill makes a move for the airlock, and bullets ricochet off the scaffolding beside him. Another lucky miss! This time, it's a third assassin, Sergeant Ballard, Shepard's mole in the security office, who probably killed Montone. Unless Yario did it, because he's the he's the garroter. O'Neill and Ballard are walking across the framework of what looks like an enormous solar panel, but I'm not sure that's what it is. You well, I, that so that's what I thought they were. From the long shots make it look like solar panels for sure. But, but what they do... <laughs> yeah, when when, it, when we're in the close-up shots, it, it's just crisscrossed panels, which yeah. also look really cool. And maybe that's what solar panels look like in the future. Yeah, exactly. But they're electrified, for sure. Right. O'Neill has the high ground because he's one row above Ballard, and Ballard doesn't know that. Eventually, O'Neill jumps down to tackle him. Ballard drops his gun, and we see that anything that gets close to the panels is zapped with electricity. Ballard is on the walkway, and O'Neill is hanging off the side, but the two unarmed men continue wrestling, and any time they get close to the panels, the electricity arcs out at them. O'Neill yanks Ballard over the side, and when they catch the next walkway down, it's O'Neill's turn to be on the walkway and Ballard's to hang off, briefly before he climbs back up next to O'Neill. So now they're, they're on equal footing. Ballard shoves O'Neill against the panels, which are arcing against his helmet. I was worried they were going to like zap his face because the glass is right up against the electricity. The two men grasp desperately for each other's oxygen tubes, and O'Neill wins that race, tearing Ballard's hose away and dropping him down the face of the paneling. Ballard's body tumbles limply, sparking all the way down, and then just above the floor, he seems to explode in a spark like flies in a bug zapper. I was going to say he falls farther than the Titanic. Ah. Because Ballard. Ballard. Like, uh. I don't get it. The guy, he's the guy who discovered the Titanic? There wasn't, you go. Wasn't the guy last name Ballard? I thought his name was Cameron something. <laughs> <laughs> James Cameron? That sounds right. Ballard. I have no idea. We cut back to the bar where the entire crew of the facility are still holding out and everyone's jaw drops when O'Neill stumbles through the door. 
understanding instantly that he has won the contest and the two assassins and the mole are now dead. He limps through the parting sea of workers to face off with Shepard. Shepard. Oh, fuck it. He punches Shepard four feet off the ground and he smashes through one of the glowing bar tables when he lands. O'Neill turns and leaves. I heard they had a whole extensive fight scene choreographed for this, but everybody had space dysentery, so Connery just improvised this moment. <laughs> that sounds very Indiana Jones. Yeah, that's what I'm referencing. Oh, for a <laughs> oh sorry. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't get it. No, I that's the joke. Okay. Because it's sorry, I explained the joke. Now it's not funny. No, it's funnier for the people that didn't get it before now. <laughs> For a man as clearly exhausted as O'Neill is, he can barely walk, yet somehow he can punch a man as right. large as, as as Peter Boyle, like, as you said, four <laughs> feet into the air, like, comically It's the, it's so. the lack of gravity. Yeah, that could yeah. be. That's Maybe. a good... They just the turned no it price. off in this one area. Yeah. <laughs> localized. I imagine he turned and walked right to intensive care, like, all right, I need yeah. you to fix all these bones. We cut right to O'Neill packing his bags to leave, and Lazarus pops in to say her goodbyes. She also thanks him for all the excitement. You did good. So did you. Damn right. O'Neill types out a message to his wife. Arriving in time for flight. Keep ticket warm. Job done. Kiss Paul for me. Forever. Just you do the kissing. No, he doesn't. <laughs> that's not in there. Looking forward to sleeping with you for a year. The joke here being that the flight from the station to Earth is about a year, which is actually really fast Yeah, to get from Jupiter to Earth. The end. That's the end of our film. I don't feel like the drug problem was resolved. No, not at all. No problem was solved, really. <laughs> a bunch of new problems were introduced. <laughs> you, you destroyed our greenhouse. Yeah. <laughs> We we're can't all gonna get die. from one side of the ship to the other because you put a big yeah. hole in our hallway. We can't, we, we can't get to, <laughs> like, the, if a new shuttle arrives, they can't get to us because you destroyed the tunnel between the shuttle and us. <laughs> Do you guys recall the last film that we reviewed that ended with a character on a flight to Earth? Saturn 3? Saturn 3. I like to think Farrah Fawcett is with them on the same ship going to visit Earth for the first time. The similarities to 1952's High Noon are well documented. Both films profile a marshal left in charge of a town beset by corruption who is left by his wife when he won't prioritize his marriage over the job in both films he learns that killers are inbound due to arrive at exactly noon though in one film they don't arrive at noon and he turns to the townspeople for support and spoiler alert both films end with the lawman taking out their enemies and walking away from the job to rejoin their family elsewhere both films also feature saloon style swinging doors though the ones in Outland are appropriately futuristic. There are a few movies that this reminded me of over the course of it. I mentioned Hot Fuzz already, but Brubaker reminds me a lot of this situation because it's like the one good guy coming into this extremely corrupt situation. Mm -hmm. And all the people who work here are essentially prisoners. Yeah. Like as much as they have free will, they're just being given drugs and kept in this place where they spend all their money. Well, yeah. Like you, you mentioned the, the company store. Right. And like they basically just all have one-year sentences in this jail. But it's especially apparent from their sleeping quarters that this is a prison that you're working on. Well, and 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 Sean Connery even threatens, I think, uh, Spada that he says that the one year that you were here is going to seem like a picnic where yeah. you're going. And this is like, wait, is this a really terrible place? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I like this movie a lot. I think the effects are great. Um, I think the acting is really good from everybody. I was a little worried about Peter Boyle at the start. 
when he gives that speech um where he's just talking about i let him work hard and i let him play hard mm. like it just felt like he was reading lines it didn't feel like he was giving much to that moment but later on he actually has more to do but then the finale with him is so anticlimactic like yeah. we i wanted to see him explode in sparks at the bottom yeah. of the wall not yeah. just get punched once uh I, I forgot to bring it up it's so stupid though um when we're in Peter Boyle's office, yeah. he's got a gigantic scale model of the moon of Io. Like it's it's obnoxiously large. It, it, it's easily like like almost two feet in diameter and just sitting on his desk precariously. Yeah. Is like, it lit from within too? It's like glowing. No, it's like it's like a solid, but it's got it's like a relief map. It has like all the texturing <laughs> of the moon, but it's like it's so big and in the way. <laughs> yeah, you can't use this for anything. Yeah, there's, exactly. There's nowhere to go on the planet outside of this facility. It's not like he does a lot of work. He's a, just a drug runner. Like he doesn't <laughs> yeah. need to sit at his desk and fill out forms. That's true. <laughs> but the doctor is great she's so funny mm-hmm. and uh, i love that she just doesn't give a shit for so much of the movie i also really love the the dirty space aesthetic that carries through yeah. with, like like they said alien is a part of the same universe i tweeted today that i would love to see someone do like a crossover series that combines 2001 with this and silent running and uh someone suggested solaris for that group although i, I haven't seen the original solaris but um but just this like sort of like lived in space area where i mean like i don't know where most of this dirt is coming from because they don't go outside like it seems like it should be a very sterile environment but maybe it's all just grease well i mean it's just yeah and they're miners so they're like like digging through rock during the day i guess yeah like the the worst case scenario it's just like it's just like human like dirt yeah (laughs) (laughs) that's actually terrifying (laughs) but uh i mean if if they're going for factual stuff for io uh, which I don't know because again of the time that it was because yeah. Io's volcanoes um, are so destructive and so powerful that they they the Io's losing mass because these it's ejecting into it's space ejecting mass into space from these volcanic eruptions. Oh, that's crazy! Um, that the rocks can achieve escape velocity yeah, yeah, even it's in one six gravity, blowing it out. Um, uh, and that's part that's part of in 2010 when they go to the discovery, it's covered in dust. From, oh, okay, from and that's all the from ejections. the volcanoes. Yeah. Uh, so I mean, all that stuff could be blowing in. It just makes its way in eventually. That's true. Like you track sand from the beach. You just like how yeah. Do you yeah but you shouldn't be leaving well, the doors it, open. Well, no, but as <laughs> be going out, all the dust should be blowing out if you do. Were you born on a farm? As you get sucked into space. <laughs> I mean, if you bring the dust in on your suit in the airlock, unless you suck all the that's air true. completely yeah. out of there, that that those particles are in there. Yeah. That makes sense. And I actually, I, I really love, as far as like dirt from the greenhouse, like concept, like, uh, I love the greenhouse setup. Yeah. I, I think I, it like, makes a lot more sense than the silent running greenhouse, yeah. which is just at the bottom of the bubble and yeah. there's no three dimensionality to it. Yeah. This, this is like a giant tiered structure. Yeah. That's how like, it would be. And it would probably rotate mm-hmm. to give the plants equal sun time. Yeah. You know, Cause and, I think this thing would face the sun all, all the time. Yeah. But you have to build it so massive because it has to produce so much air for so many people. Right. That's what that bubble's for. Why'd you pop it? Um, thumbs up for me, obviously. Oh, yeah. Thumbs up. All right. Four thumbs up, I think. We're thumbs up. Do. Absolutely. Yeah. I, yeah. I really in- enjoyed it. I, I, I saw this movie when I was very young. Uh, I, I can't remember. Right. TNT showed a lot of movies like late night when, when I was like in in the 90s. Um, 
and so I'm sure I must have stumbled upon it. And I, it always stuck with me because of the the people's faces like swelling Yeah, it's up. really great. Yeah. I love the um, look of it. And it because it also does that kind of like push in and kind of slight camera distortion. Yeah, yeah. With it, um, but uh, as you mentioned before, even even back then, I was just like, I don't like this kid. Um, <laughs> but uh, Peter Hyams knows how to do a space movie. He and, really does. And in the, in 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 the form of a uh, Capricorn One, a not space movie. Right, but. Uh, it, it's it's just a technical, just technically the visual aesthetic, everything about it looks great. Yeah, it's funny actually. the The second guy's head that explodes in the corridor, um, we don't actually see his head explode. Like uh, it starts to stretch out, mm-hmm. and then it cuts away before the actual eruption of the head. But because you're so surprised by it and you see an explosion afterward, you feel like you saw the person's head explode. Yeah. But I was watching that moment. <laughs> And Addie walked into the room for just just before the guy's head starts inflating. She she said she turned in and looked because she saw sparkles from the sparks. <laughs> and she looked. And suddenly this guy's head was just... It just exploded. She's like, what the heck was that? Like freaking out about it. But uh, I was like, yeah, let's back it up real quick. So you can see. <laughs> frame by frame here for you. Yeah, but, uh, and I don't know what how much truth there is to that. Because I don't... Uh, not at all. Yeah, because like I feel like that's one of those things you can't really test. Yeah, <laughs> like what they what made happens? it illegal to test those jerks. Um, uh, because they d- they did it to Anthony Zerby in License to Kill. Yeah, they put him in a decompression chamber, turned off the pressure, and then broke the glass on it, and you just see his face like stretch out. Yeah. Um, Obviously, I always go to Total Recall too when Arnold's yeah. in space as the atmosphere is oh, building. That's his, the best. Yeah, when his eyes are getting pulled out and he's just yeah. freaking out. I, and that one's the best because it lasts for like forty-five seconds. Yes, yeah. because um, like Event Horizon, um, they just like have like blood pouring out of all like the 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 narrow like you know your fingernails and your eye sockets and Oof. stuff like that because um, all your capillaries are just exploding. Yeah. Uh, so there's a lot of different like takes on it yeah but what would have what would actually happen to a person who's quickly ejected into space i feel like the one that always seemed the most accurate to me based on absolutely nothing other than just my general gut feeling is it's either red planet or mission to mars which one is the one where the guy freezes instantly uh mission to mars tim robbins okay that seems accurate that's what i always (laughs) think would happen and i don't know for sure that that's what happened because i know space is like zero or very near absolute zero kelvin Mm. um which is what absolute means i guess (laughs) but um the fact that like it just makes sense to me that it would flash freeze you faster than your the air in your body would have time to explode like especially if what's being exposed immediately is your face Mm -hmm. that i think like your head would freeze and then everything else would freeze um do we really think that for sure no one's taken an animal up to the space station and seen oh. what happens at zero? I, I know that it just seems it seems like absolutely someone's done it. Yeah. And we don't know. Yeah, like, I would I wouldn't report it for sure. If I did. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure they've taken people up there for like, this That's guy the new got song. a lethal injection and then he wakes up the next day on a spaceship. <laughs> and Saw eight is yeah. uh, on the space station. Yeah, it's like, for science. <laughs> I'd be like, you know what? This is actually pretty cool. Like, I'm kind of glad that I murdered that elderly couple because I've always <laughs> wanted to go to space, even if you're going to throw me out there. <laughs> 
I loved O'Neill's character in the movie. Like I, I understood his motivations there at the end, which I think are kind of selfish, which I think yeah. like I kind of works with the fact that they don't even really explain how anything's really resolved at the end. You're kind of in the exact same spot you were in before they sent <laughs> yeah. the two dudes. And maybe they'll send a better general manager and now you're leaving. Anyway. They have I, to send a lot of people now. It was it was a very <laughs> personal like thing for him and I, I got that. I liked his little speech about why he was doing it when he's talking right. to Lazarus and in the racquetball court. Yeah. Yeah. Like like where it, I don't even want to say fell apart, but where it for me was like, ah, okay, you're doing the thing is because the climax is so much built on the spectacle once he's in space. And anytime like a movie is built on spectacle and it was made a long time ago, it's like, well... I've seen so many things since then that unless you're doing something really weird, which sometimes 70s and 80s movies do, that I'm like, oh, that's weird. You know, if you're doing something somewhat standard, it's like, look at our special effects. Right. You know, which you always get with action movies in the 30s, 40s, 50s. It's like, okay, I, I, I know it's just get, get past this. You know? Yeah. Um, like, so you talked about how the, the new adaptation is for a series. And one thing that they didn't explore that I would have really liked to see, which I understand why they couldn't do it in this movie, is the perspective from the user of the drug and potentially someone specifically injecting him with it, like in, injecting oh, the Marshall with the drug. Oh, that's a great idea. That's a great idea. And to have like a moment where we're seeing the spiders that, that got Cliff <laughs> Clavin, like, like so that we get a feel for what these people are going through in their last moments, that they would be so terrified that they're going to take off their helmet. I don't know if it's more terrifying to not see what they're doing and to just understand that this person's willing to verifiably commit suicide to avoid what's happening or what they think is happening. But um, I think that'd be a fun moment to do uh, to have him go through it and, and maybe even have, you know, like a bit of a, like a house situation where he's like recovering from this addiction for mm -hmm. a significant That's a great idea. Movie. Yeah. Letterboxed. Yeah. Uh, do we have our rankings? Uh, I'm going to start with VJ here because we actually went through the list of what we've covered so far from 81 and so he's going to let us know where this falls in the ranking of what he's seen from the air. This one falls, I believe I had it, yeah, I have it after Cutter's Way, which I like a lot, uh, but over or, or above Knight Riders, which I also like, but yeah, I have it uh, above Knight Riders. I, I really enjoyed, I really enjoyed it. It's very simple, mostly easy to understand. It is a space western. Uh, it's good. Yeah. Uh, Jess, what are you thinking? I have it in... Number four out of 67. Wow. Wow. That's great. I can't get over the look of this movie. Like, yeah. I would watch it over and over again just to just to look at it. Yeah, the set design is gorgeous. Yeah. And it's consistent throughout. Like, there's no yeah. lazy room. Like, all of it looks great. Yeah. So that puts it um, below Excalibur and above The Howling for me. Richard, what do you got? Uh, I have it in number 13, uh, which puts it uh, below The Omen 3 and above death hunt and i think the reason i put it below the omen 3 was because i'd never seen the omen 3 before and it really just like stuck with me it was like yeah this movie is incredible and crazy <laughs> and i had seen alan before so it didn't didn't have like that that kind of like new feeling for me this was but, a first view for me yeah so. me too but uh, i i will admit that that the crumbling paper mache baby face in the omen 3 <laughs> just gave me freaking chills i have this in seventh out of 67 uh that puts it directly below oliver stone's the hand and right above martin borman's excalibur so um you had it next to excalibur yeah. i think you had it mm -hmm. below but john borman oh jo what did i say martin borman <laughs> the, the nazi oliver borman 
<laughs> no, I said Martin Borman, which is the Nazi that they use the picture in Willy Wonka, mm. and he's also the character that Jason Robards is playing in Cabo Blanco, but that's irrelevant. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> Great memory. Except for what is his name? John Borman. John Borman. <laughs> <laughs> Keep that. Great memory. Keep that. <laughs> John Borman's Excalibur. Moving through the cast and crew here. Our writer-director was Peter Hyams. Uh, his work directing this film, as I said before, landed him the gig, directing 2010, The Year We Make Contact. And a lot of the parts like of this movie, like I said, they reminded me of 2001. But yeah. also just this set design and the general like aesthetic of this version of space feels like it fits really well. Oh, yeah. The, the, the Leonov in 2010 is very reminiscent to all the set design here. Yeah. And how many people have directed movies that center on Jupiter's moons, you know, like mm-hmm. it's, it was meant to be? He also directed Capricorn 1, Star Chamber, The 86 Running Scared, Time Cop, and End of Days. Oh. Uh, the music here was from Jerry Goldsmith. That's Richard's favorite composer. Yeah. Uh, he's also the composer of the first James Bond adaptation, the climax episode Casino Royale in 1954. He also scored In Like Flint, Capricorn 1, The Swarm, Boys from Brazil, Star Trek The Motion Picture, Magic, uh, Alien, Gremlins 1 and 2, Explorers, Inner Space, Matinee, and The Burbs for Joe Dante. Yeah. Which it's is like why, so probably why he's... Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's like... <laughs> Uh, don't forget Legend. Legend, the, Secret the, of Nim. Um, and then The Ghost in the Darkness was also him. Uh, so Why far, was I thinking that Legend was like a Tangerine Dream thing? Well, the original score was by Jerry Goldsmith, and they didn't think that it would it would work well. So they got Tangerine Dream to re-record a lot of the tracks. Um, if you watch the director's cut of Legend, though, uh-huh. Jerry Goldsmith's score has been reintegrated into the oh, film. Well, okay. I love Tangerine Dream's Thief score. Yeah, the Thief. And I'm oh, really yeah, looking too. forward. They came back for The Keep, which was the next Michael Mann movie. And uh, I have not seen it, but the, the premise has me very excited. So It's wild. It's good stuff. Um, so far, we've discussed Goldsmith's work on The Ballad of Cable Hogue. Escape from the Planet of the Apes, Cabo Blanco, and Omen 3, which we were just talking about. And he's back later this year for Raggedy Man. Cinematographer Stephen Goldblatt. Apparently, Hyams hired Goldblatt as a scapegoat for the studio, as he handled much of the cinematography himself, only consulting Goldblatt when he was confused by the introvision process. <laughs> Goldblatt was obviously insulted to be deceived in this way, but stayed on for the opportunity to teach himself introvision, which he used on later films. Uh, he was also the DP on Breaking Glass, which just got a minisode earlier this month. He DP'd the first two Lethal Weapon movies, Joe vs. the Volcano, the Schumacher Batmans, Strip Tease, The Help, and more recently Nancy Myers, The Intern with Anne Hathaway and Robert De Niro, which we watched. That was fun. The editor was Stuart Baird. Before this, he edited The Omen and Superman for Richard Donner. And after, he cuts Superman 2 and the first couple Lethal Weapons, also for Donner. He cut Die Hard 2, The Last Boy Scout, Demolition Man, The 06 Casino Royale, and Green Lantern for Martin Campbell, and later Skyfall and the latest Tomb Raider reboot. Did he do The Rocketeer? Um, I don't know if he did. Didn't he direct U.S. Marshals? He did. He okay. was a director on U.S. Marshals, Executive Decision, and Star Trek Nemesis. Those were his oh, only three titles. Oh, Nemesis. Oh, Nemesis. Oh. Yeah. It's a bummer. <laughs> Sean Connery played Marshal William T. O'Neill. He's James Bond. He's Darby O'Gill. He's Alan Quartermain. He's Professor Henry Jones. He's not Darby O'Gill. <laughs> Isn't he? No, he's not Darby O'Gill. <laughs> Who plays Darby? Oh, Darby O'Gill's the old man. Yeah. He's Darby O'Gill's friend. <laughs> the, the, he's Darby O'Gill's future son-in-law, I guess. Uh, he's Draco the dragon. 
so many iconic characters. Uh, he's probably also best known for his appearance as Zed in Borman's Zardoz. Which Borman? I'll never tell. <laughs> <laughs> it's possible his name here is a misspelled reference to Gerard K. O'Neill, who developed what is known as an O'Neill Cylinder, a technology that could replicate gravity on board a space settlement. But that's me reaching. <laughs> Peter Boyle played Mark B. Shepard. He's the monster in Young Frankenstein. He's the wizard in Taxi Driver. Raymond's dad on Everybody Loves Raymond, right? He's Raymond's dad. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Never saw that show. <laughs> so far, we've had him as Hunter S. Thompson's attorney, Laszlo, in Where the Buffalo Roam, and con man priest, Dr. Melmoth, in In God We Trust. My favorite role from him is still Jocko Dundee from the Dundee Gang in Johnny Dangerously, though I also <laughs> recently found a pilot for a show called Puchinski. Are you guys familiar with Puchinski? No. Uh, I first heard about this through the last podcast on the left. It's essentially a televised adaptation of Oh Heavenly Dog. It's not Benji related at all. But Peter Boyle plays Officer Puchinski, a cop killed in the line of duty, reincarnated into a flatulent bulldog who then <laughs> continues solving crimes. I was uh, going to suggest it's the Italian version of Homer Simpson's uh, animated character. Right, basically. <laughs> but I love that his name was Officer Puchinski before he became a dog. <laughs> And the character is likely named after Alan Shepard, the first American in space. Francis Sternhagen. Oh, I, I was assuming that he was shepherding the drugs to the station. <laughs> okay, that works too. <laughs> I'll allow it. Francis Sternhagen played Dr. Lazarus. She's Virginia in Misery. She's Lillian in Doc Hollywood. And on Cheers, she played Esther Claven, mother of Cliff Claven, who also appears in this film. Hmm. Lazarus, of course, being the name of a biblical character, famously killed and brought back to life, which loosely parallels her character arc as a doctor who'd essentially given up on her profession until Jesus Connery resurrected it. <laughs> James Sicking, or James B. Sicking, plays Sergeant Montone. He was Captain Stiles in The Search for Spock. He was FBI Director Voiles in The Pelican Brief. And he's C. Thomas Howell's dad in Soul Man. <laughs> so far, we've reviewed his work in Ordinary People and The Competition. Kika Markham played Carol G. O'Neill. This is the only thing I recognize from her credits, so not a lot there. Clark Peters was Officer Ballard. He was Detective Lester Freeman on The Wire. He's Alonzo Quinn on Person of Interest. And he's Albert Lambro on Treme. Uh, Detective Oscar Clemens on Netflix's Jessica Jones series. And he was just Otis in Spike Lee's The Five Bloods for Netflix. Uh, his character name is possibly a reference to sci-fi author J.G. Ballard, hmm. who is regarded as the founding father of the cyberpunk movement with various post-apocalyptic dystopian works. Stephen Burkoff played Sagan. Hmm, I wonder who he's named after. Yeah. <laughs> uh, probably Carl Sagan. He plays Detective Constable Tom in Clockwork Orange. He's Orlov in Octopussy with a different James Bond. And he was Victor Maitland in Beverly Hills Cop. John Ratzenberger played Tarlow. He's on Cheers. He's in all the Pixar movies. We've had him so far in Empire Strikes Back and Motel Hell. He's back for Ragtime and Reds this season. And next season, he's Rusty in Battle Truck, which I'm very excited <laughs> That sounds for. awesome. Yeah. Manning Redwood was Officer Lowell. Uh, he was Bob Conley in A View to a Kill. He's General Miller in Never Say Never Again, so he's multiple characters in James Bond movies. He's a forest ranger in The Shining, the one that Wendy is able to radio. And I remember pointing out that his name is manning redwood and he's yeah. a forest ranger <laughs> perfect name uh he's back as harry weiss in shock treatment later this season he's presumably named after astronomer percival lowell after whom the lowell observatory is also named we didn't get a we didn't get a name for for ratzenberger's character 
Tarlo. Yeah, I I tried. What is it? I Taro? It, Tarlo. Tarlo. I, I checked it backwards because it looks like a backwards word. Walrat. Uh, when Tarlo died and they're yelling his name over the sounds of the explosions, I thought they were saying Carlos. <laughs> and, and I thought that too. I didn't real. I didn't even remember that until just now. Yeah, and I was like, and I kept looking through the cast. Who played Carlos? <laughs> and I was like, I can't find a Carlos. A space jackal. Pat Starr played Mrs. Flo Specter. That's like a <laughs> that's a cool rap name. <laughs> uh, she was Lily Hammond in Judge Dredd, and she's back as Helen Waters in Reds later this season. Hal Galili played Officer Nelson. He plays Burpleson in Doctor Strangelove. Angus McInnes plays Hughes. He's Gold Leader in Star Wars Episode Four. He's Judge Silver in Judge Dredd, and he's Sergeant Whitman in Hellboy. Eugene Lipinski plays Kane, which might be a reference to High Noon because Kane is the lead character of that oh, film. Yeah, he's back for Superman Two and Shock Treatment later this season. Norman Chancer played Officer Slater. He was a Rebel officer in Empire. Later this season, he's a White House aide in Superman 2, he's Gent Number 1 in Ragtime, and Barney in Reds. He's also a gangster in Goldfinger, so a lot of Bond people. Bill Bailey played Officer Hill. He was the second senator in Superman and JJ in Superman 2 later this season. Mark Boyle played Nicholas P. Spada. Spada is Peter Hyam's wife's maiden name, and it appears in several of his films, including The Presidio, End of Days, Time Cop, The Relic, and Sudden Death. That's sweet. Boyle was completely dubbed over for his appearance in this film, and as best I can tell, he is not related to Peter Boyle. He was Brother Benito, one of the monk assassins in The Omen 3 earlier this season, and he's back later as a CRS man in Superman 2, which makes sense because I think Donner produced mm. both films. P.H. Moriarty played Man Number 1 arriving on the shuttle. Is that the assassin? Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. they don't get names at all. Yeah. He plays Jack Tate in Jaws 3D. Angelique Rockus plays Maintenance Woman. She's Henrietta in The Witches. Hmm. Jude Alderson played female prostitute, leisure club sequence. So that might be dancing then, I would guess. Okay. She comes back to play another prostitute later this season in The French Lieutenant's Woman. And she also plays Ma Vicious, the mother of Sid Vicious in Alex Cox's Sid and Nancy. Rainer Burton played the male prostitute in The Leisure Club sequence. Just before this, he had played a newscaster in the BBC Hitchhiker's Guide. Doug Robinson played man number two arriving on the shuttle. I don't know why they're credited so far apart. He plays a snow trooper in Empire. He's also uncredited as judo opponent on Ares 1B TV in 2001 A Space Odyssey. That's during Haywood Floyd's flight to the moon. The flight attendants are watching a judo match while mm. he sleeps. And he's one of the competitors in that judo match wow. apparently. But that's an uncredited credit. So he might have just added that because he's like, I want to be in 2001. Now I am. <laughs> <laughs> Brendan Hughes played a dancer in the Leisure Club sequence, uncredited werewolf in American Werewolf in London later this season. John Cannon played barman. He was a holographic imperial officer in Empire. Tony Clarkin played technician victim. He was a stormtrooper in Empire last season, and he's back in the same role for Return of the Jedi in 83, or maybe a different stormtrooper. Who knows? <laughs> he was also one of the assholes from the bar who broke into the Elephant Man's apartment in that film. He was a party guest for the birthday party that kicks off Rough Cut, and he was Drogo's second-in-command in Hawk the Slayer last season. He's back this season as a sergeant major in Eye of the Needle, an Arab prince in Clash of the Titans, a U.S. Marine in Superman 2, and a vampire two episodes from now in The Monster Club. Last credit here is Maurice Roves, who plays first victim, but the first victim is 
not him. It's John Ratzenberger, so yeah. I don't know what this means. But he's Miller in Judge Dredd. Uh, he's also Colonel Edmund Monroe in Last of the Mohicans. Before we call it quits, is there anything else you have coming down the pipe that our listeners should be keeping an eye out for? Well, I just have to... Did you mention Nick Barnes, the kid? Did I miss that? Did I miss Paul O'Neill? Does he have other credits? I don't I, think... I am just fascinated by his IMDb entry because <laughs> the it says... He has been married to Caitlin I since 2013. He was previously married to Agina Berg and Becky. As if we know them. <laughs> yeah. It just, just says them name. as if, oh you, know, you know them. Becky? Yeah. Seriously? Like, Her he butt was married is so to big. Becky. <laughs> and the trivia simply says, New York, New York. And two two people have gone to the trouble of disliking that entry of trivia. I feel like so AI I, wrote this trivia. I enjoyed his IMDb. So I, I did I see that he was married to Caitlin. I was surprised. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's pretty incredible. He's um, too tall for him. <laughs> for sure. I don't think he he's stayed still as tall a child. As he he's still a movie. child. That's the thing. Is he was, however, in a movie in 2016, but after a very long break, oh, mostly okay. a child actor. Now he was in some uh, miniseries. In Becky 2016. talked him into it. <laughs> That's why he left her and is with Caitlin now. Oh, okay, great. Um, but uh, but to your question, uh, you're asking me, do I have anything coming down the pike? And I was working on the new Justified spinoff season, City Prime Evil, and then uh, I actually took this week off. Uh, not that listeners care, but specifically I have not taken to appear on week, this show, <laughs> I have not taken a week of vacation in over a year. So this has been very relaxing. You catch me at my most relaxed. Perfect. And, uh, um, and then uh, we'll see. We'll see what comes next. I'm well, pitching many things. It was a pleasure being on. Well, let us know the next time that you have a vacation. We can interrupt it again <laughs> with another episode. <laughs> Make you watch a movie and take notes. <laughs> what do you, everyone wants to do on it's their fun. vacation? It's fun. It's a lot of fun. <laughs> <laughs> I know you also have a couple comic series available on Comixology. You have Night Moves and Ghost Cop. Are there any other comics on the horizon? Uh, no, but uh, we are going to try and pitch Night Moves as a TV show. So oh, my great. brother and I. But Night Moves is, I mean, I like both Ghost Cop and Night Moves, but night moves i was really proud of uh i think it's a fun five issue horror i was gonna say noir five, right? i love horror and noir and supernatural noir so if you like that kind of stuff in comics and we have uh uh, uh covers by chris burnham who's one of my favorite artists so. very cool all right i think that's everything for outland if you guys have anything you'd like to share we are vintage video pod on twitter facebook instagram and letterboxd or as i've said before you can find each of our full movie rankings for the year we can also be found at vintagevideopodcast.com we also have a discord now We've, we've had it all year. We keep talking you, about it. You, you could probably <laughs> drop the now. <laughs> Join the 24-7 movie chat and share your thoughts on episodes past, present, and future at vintagevideopodcast.com slash discord. And if you're listening on YouTube, don't forget to subscribe. Do that. Subscribe, guys. What's that sound? We got one! That's right. We have another new patron for the show, James Kylie. As a $5 patron, James now has access to 21 full-size 70s reviews and 17 belated minisodes of titles we've missed from 1980. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you'll join us next time when we'll be discussing Savage Harvest, which IMDb describes like so. A family in Africa finds itself under attack by a pride of lions. <gasps> oh, this one finally. Not Roar. No, I know, but yeah, different movie, the other one. Yeah, the, the other lion attacking a family yeah. movie. There are two in 1981. Um, thank you so much for listening, and we leave you now with a trailer for Savage Harvest, if one exists. <laughs> it's Christy. Memsab told you not to come out here. Nothing out here. Memsab told you not to come out here. Now, you go back to the house, please. I have to practice. You 
practice in the house, you'll practice somewhere else. But you'll do what Memsav tells you. Come on, Lena. I don't want to hear I have to practice. I let you out. Nothing out. He told you not to come out here. Now you go back into the house. 